Hey everyone, it's Adam with a quick programming note before we start the episode. Uh, as I was putting on the finishing touches on this episode um, last night, uh, we were getting reports that the WGA strike may be close to resolving, uh, although the actor strike is still ongoing. Obviously, the movies and TV shows that we love wouldn't be possible without the hard work of the actors and writers and others who make these shows and movies. So while Nate and I aren't union members, we wanted to make it clear that we stand with them in their efforts to secure fair compensation and protections. And we're hopeful that the WGA are able to ratify their deal and that SAG-AFTRA are not too far behind. And in the meantime, we want to reiterate our support. Okay, on with the show. Oh no, they're headed right for the Grand Chasm! Oh my god! They're going to drive right into it just to teach us men a lesson. And it's all my fault. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpson fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpson joke came from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that one of us hasn't seen, or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me as always is the blue T-bird to my Grand Canyon, <laughs> my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, bud? I'm good, just basking in the afterglow of the Barbenheimer summer, and uh, yeah, ready to talk about some movies. Oh, I can't wait. Well, and actually, that's, you know, kind of an appropriate uh, theme for today's film, because yeah. this week we watched Ridley Scott's 1991 classic, Thelma and Louise. You might remember it from such Simpsons episodes as Season 3's Homer Alone, Season 5's Marge on the Lamb, and Season 10's Marge Simpson in Screaming Yellow Honkers. <laughs> I gotta be honest, I only remember it from one of those, and I don't even remember what the hell Screaming Yellow Honkers is. I don't um, really remember what happens in that one, but I think it's just mentioned. I think okay. maybe Wiggum calls Marge Thelma and Louise. Right, okay, that sounds about right. I'm okay, pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, to that end, we're mostly going to be talking about the episode that sort of properly parodies the film, which is Marge on the Lamb, which is episode six from season five, original air date, November 4th, 1993. Uh, it was directed by Mark Kirkland and written by Bill Canterbury. I don't think he's come up yet. Was he a staff writer? Was he like a one-offer? What's his story? Uh, yeah, I actually don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the short answer. You know what? I actually think he might have been a staff writer. He wrote 22 episodes or has writing credits in 22 episodes right. from 1993 to 1994. So right around this time. So he was So probably, maybe it was just just this season or something. Right, right. Something like that. But yeah, I think this is a really great episode. We mentioned Homer Alone. So in that episode, that's the one where it's one of the various episodes where Marge gets overwhelmed by her experience as a mother and a wife and needs a break. And so she goes to Rancho Relaxo, mm. um, if you remember that. And, of course, Thelma and Louise is one of the movies that's offered on the TV. And ah. when you when you when when she like gets into the bath, you can see that that's what she's watching on the TV. Let's get out of here, Thelma. Okay, Louise. <sighs> right. Okay. That so makes sense. That's... You know, they talk about this on the commentary where sometimes they have like a sort of little one-off idea and then they come back to it later where they're like, well, what if we did that, but we did it as a whole episode? And I right. kind of wonder if this was one of those things where it's like, they were like, yeah, you know, Marge would watch Thelma and Louise. And then they're like, 
well, what if we did a whole Thelma and Louise episode? And that's kind of what Marge on the Lamb feels like. So this is the one where, you know, she has this new friend who comes to the door, Ruth, who is like a neighbor and she's divorced and kind of going through some stuff. And they go on a road trip together, basically. And Ruth was already introduced. I must have been the season before or whatever, maybe even the season before that. But she's she's the one who her daughter, Bart, has the crush on and she's a single mom and that was a whole thing and she gives her the mm-hmm. care package with da- for the for the male of the household and i remember it's a vhs of das butt which is yes, one of those great right. simpson porn parodies but yeah season five <laughs> i like i remember as a kid i had to look it up and i'm like that's the one in the red dvd case right because like that for mm. many years was what i cited as my favorite season until i discovered the sort of like meta humor of season seven and eight the oakley weinstein years but season five some of the bangers in this season are Mm -hmm. homer's barbershop quartet cape fear which is my all-time favorite sideshow bob episode homer goes to college rosebud Mm -hmm. marge on the lamb boy scouts in the hood last temptation of homer springfield or how i learned to stop worrying and love legalized gambling Homer the Vigilante, Bart Gets Famous, Homer and Apu. Like, I haven't skipped an episode yet. Like, it's literally just back-to-back bangers. And quite frankly, this is just one of many phenomenal episodes in a phenomenal season. Yeah, and a season with a lot of movie parodies at that, too. So what do you think was going through their heads when the writers sort of were pitching this idea of doing some kind of parody of Thelma and Louise with kind of Marge in the Thelma role, I guess, and Ruth in mm-hmm. the Louise role. What do you think? This is one of those like interesting situations where they kind of break their sort of traditional rule, right? The episode's from like 93 and mm-hmm. the movie's from 91. So this is a relatively contemporary reference. Yeah. They're not going for something that they know has at least 10 years worth of cultural staying power. Mm-hmm. They're sort of, I guess, in a weird way, like planting their flag in the sand of saying, like, we think this is going to end up being a classic. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. I guess it's also just the fact that the sort of feminist or female focused story of Thelma and Louise, you know, there's not a lot of those to pull from yeah. in cinema, cinema history. And so when you want to do a Marge focused episode, and if you're going to pull from a movie, unless you're doing sort of like a gendered reversal sort of play on something, there's not a lot to pick from. But it is interesting because like Marge being the character that she is doesn't kind of lend herself naturally to these sort of characters. And maybe that's part of why they want to do it is because like there would be right. humor coming out of the dichotomy of like Marge in this role. But I don't know. What do you think? My initial thought. So the way that her relationship with Ruth gets sparked is that Homer and Marge agree to go to the ballet together, right? Right. But Homer can't make it because his arm <laughs> gets stuck inside one vending machine and then in another vending machine, right? Yeah. And when the guys come over and try to help him, you know, get out, they're like, I don't know, we're going to have to saw your arm off. And then the one guy's they'll grow, like... They'll grow back, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and, but then one of the guys is like, Homer, are you holding on to the can? And he's like, your point being. And then, of course, when he lets go, he's able to get out. But the thing that I noticed this time rewatching it that I thought was very interesting is they repeat that line in the next scene where Marge is talking to Ruth. 
And Ruth is sort of talking about her relationship with Homer and like, you know, how he's not really living up to his role as a husband. And right. she also says, your point being. And, oh. and suddenly I was like, okay, so is Marge's marriage a metaphorical vending machine that she can't let go of? Right. Ah, I think interesting. you know. I mean, you know. Okay. I think it's like it's played for comedy, right? But like yeah. when you actually think about what they're doing with the parallel thing there, I think what they're saying is like Marge is also caught in a vending machine, and she can free herself if she just lets go. Right? Interest, Nathan. This is deep, <laughs> deep analysis know, of deep, the Simpsons. I know. You know, and I usually don't like to go too deep because I know the writers don't want you to go that deep. But I think that's actually intentional. That's not like, you know, mm. some kind of philosophical musing. It's like, it's in the script. They're creating two parallel things. Absolutely. And and the show has sort of played with this idea of, like, why does Marge stick with Homer right. for as long as exactly. she does? Because he's such a doofus, and he kind of gets worse and worse as years go on. But, I mean, literally, like, that's kind of the crux of the Simpsons movie. It's the thing mm-hmm. of the Simpsons movie that I think works the best is this idea of, like, Marge finally kind of leaving Homer. And it is the emotional hook of that film is, like, their whole relationship. Why does it work? Does it work? Why yeah. is she still with him? And obviously it's been played you know she's run off with Artie Ziff or she's run off with Jacques the bowling teacher like right but she always comes back to Homer and then obviously one of my favorite episodes where Homer eats the crazy chili pepper and has the hallucination has to figure out who his soulmate is and like find your soulmate Homer yeah I mean like they've (laughs) sort of been mining this plot for well literally three decades now right right this is another way to come at it is like Marge is kind of Thelma-like, right? In Mm. that she is a stay-at-home mom and she has a lot of responsibilities, a lot of demands being put on her by her family, by her kids, and they don't necessarily respect her all the time. And so this is this opportunity to kind of play out that side of Marge and let her go and experience, you know, kind of what Thelma does, some version of it, and see if that's what she needed or if she's able to come back to her life with Homer at the end. And of course she does, because it's The Simpsons. So like, I I feel like that's kind of why they reference it, you know? They make a few jokes about the movie Thelma and Louise, but mostly they're using it as a way to explore Homer and Marge's relationship. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Huh. But... This episode does also have, like, some of my favorite stuff in it as well, of course. Well, as I was watching it, I was like, this is a double header for Nate because it's got two of your all-time favorite characters, both Troy McClure and Lionel Hutz. It's got some of my favorite Lionel Hutz moments, including... Uh, when they're bargaining over how much the babysitting will be, and it's like, yes. my fee is $175 an hour. We pay $8 for the night, and you can take two popsicles out of the freezer. Three. Two. Okay, two, and I get to keep this old birdcage. Done. Still got it. Yeah. <laughs> Still got it. Yeah, Lionel get, Hutz's uh, babysitter is so perfect. They're watching L.A. Law, and he makes some comment about, <laughs> about them wearing, like, like ties and working in an office building or something and then also when he's burning all of his papers and he says as of this moment Lionel Hutz no longer exists say hello to Miguel Sanchez yeah yeah exactly yeah I love that and and yeah I love Troy McClure at the beginning too it has one of those great you know you might remember me lines of hi I'm Troy McClure you might remember me from such telethons as Out With Gout 88 and Let's Save Tony Orlando's House. 
That is a good yeah. one. Yeah, those are good. And, and that's all in the context of like this uh, PBS fundraiser that Troy McClure. Yeah, the telethon. For. Telethon, yeah, exactly. Which is great. Which, do you it, remember those? I do, I do, yes. Uh, yeah, definitely something of our generation. And my dad donated every year. And like, I yeah. remember the year, not to bring it back to our musical series, but the year they had shown the like 10th anniversary concert of Les Mis. And so like oh. he made some like donation and got a VHS copy of the film. And then also at the end of the show, they brought down this giant French flag. And sure. so one of the gifts was like, you got like a tiny little swatch from the flag or so oh. so they claimed right right but right. but my dad was like he was an avid pbs donor so like thanks to go. viewers like him pbs uh, was able to continue but obviously they make a joke of who the hell would donate to pbs and the answer is march simpson so <laughs> and your dad <laughs> and apparently yeah <laughs> dr skulls right and they have that clip of uh, a pbs show which mm. uh, is edward the penitent <laughs> i'm really Really, really sorry. I'm afraid sorry doesn't cut it with this Pope. Which, like, for the life of me, I was, like, I was trying to figure out, like, what is this a specific parody of? And I don't think it's a parody of anything in particular. No, I think it's just a parody of, like, the Masterpiece Theater, the sort of, like, British royalty shows that were on the air at the time. But it's not, like, any one in particular, I don't think. Right, right, right. But that scene has potentially one of the first collar yanks on the show. Because Edward the Penitent is like, you know, begging for forgiveness from the Pope and the Pope is like, no. And that's when he does the yank. And on the commentary, they were talking about where that comes from, which Mm. is a super deep cut. And I don't think they talk about it on this episode, but some later episode, they talk about it. And it's from the TV show version of The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. You Which, say that like I would be familiar with the non-TV version? Like, there's a movie. There's oh, a movie okay. called The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, and then they made a TV show out of it. Okay. And, um, and the TV show only lasted for like a season and a half or something like that. So, of course, the Simpson writers were like, well, we can reference this totally yeah. obscure thing. Well, it's like I think it was a thing when they were kids, so they probably like remember it from when they were watching TV a lot. And there's a character played by Charles Nelson Riley on the show. No, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles Nelson Riley's great. Love him. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with him. But what do you know Charles Nelson Riley from? <laughs> um, okay, well, so to flash back to our conversation of Adam's family had cable when he was a like preteen right. and teenager, we watched <laughs> a lot of the Game Show Network. And again, they were hard up for content, so they would screen old episodes of The Match Game, and Charles Nelson Riley was on there, and he was one of my favorite celebrity guests, because he was just a character, and, like, he had a funny voice, and so... I just I was a big Charles Nelson Riley fan as a ten year old. Okay, okay, fair enough. That is the most Adam thing I've ever heard. Yeah, well, of course, but no, he was in like other stuff. Like he was in uh, the Broadway production of Bye Bye Birdie and Hello Dolly. Okay, okay. Ronan Martin's Laughing, Love Boat, Love American okay. Style, okay, so lots Johnny of stuff. Car- yeah, so like a lot of that sort of seventies era. St- stuff. Yeah, not stuff um, I watched when I was a kid, but stuff you definitely watched when you were a kid. Yeah, exactly. Weirdly. Stuff, yeah, well, I was a weird kid. <laughs> yeah, so. fair enough. I was just weird in a different way. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, so it's like this this show wasn't on for that long, but apparently the Simpsons writers really liked Charles Nelson Riley in this show, and whenever he got scared by a ghost in the show or whatever, he would do the collar yank and, okay. and make this sound. Interesting. And 
And apparently Dan Castellaneta used to do this in front of his class when he was a kid for laughs. For laughs, right. Okay. Right. Fair and enough. so, and you know, like Dan Castellaneta does a lot of like impressions and all that kind of yep. stuff. So like makes sense that like it may have even just been something that he had in his bank. And then, you know, right. the, the Simpsons they writers were in. like, oh, you do that thing. I know that thing. But in any case, this is probably the first appearance of it on the show. So that's kind of fun. And, of course, it has a, a long and proud history on the show after this. Yeah. And and in our relationship, because I feel like in high school, oh. we, we were big people. All the time. So and, all the and, time. And, yes. And, and we didn't even know that it came from Charles Nelson Riley. So thank no. you, Charles. Yeah, exactly. So there you Chuck. go. The other thing that I love in this episode is the sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows yes. gag. Where I think Marge gets in the car with Ruth, and Ruth is like... This road trip is all about, and then she plays the tape, and yeah. that's what plays. And then she gets, she like takes it out and puts in, you know, Welcome to the Jungle. But then it comes back later when Wiggum's like, all right, time for some chase music, and he puts it in. But he totally means that it should be <laughs> Sunshine, Lollipops, yeah, and Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really fun episode. <laughs> yeah, and the references to the film are like, it's sort of that nice balance that they do where it's like... It's not a front-to-back parody, but it's more than just, like, a singular reference. There's the scene where they go to the bar, and the two guys hit on them, which happens, obviously, in Thelma and Louise. And then Marge is like, I said I'm not interested. And he's like, oh, I'm totally sorry. I completely misunderstood, which is just, like, a classic Simpsons sort of, like, you think you know where this is going, and bait and switch. That's the word I was looking for. But apparently, the second gentleman, the silent gentleman that comes to hit on him, is, Mm -hmm. like, that is supposed to be modeled after Dave Merkin. (laughs) And if you see a photo of Dave Merkin, you go, okay, yeah, no, that totally tracks. Right, Um, right, right. One of my all-time favorite scenes in this episode is when they're shooting up the old cans. Right. And then the old, like, prospector farmer guy comes, my cans! My My precious antique cans! And then, of course, I just couldn't stop thinking about that when I was watching Thelma and Louise, so. Right. um, Yeah, it's kind of like the scene where they shoot the tanker a little bit. Yes, that's exactly what I was thinking of. it's, It's kind of like that, but like you said, a lot of the references are kind of like, a little bit loose. They're not like yeah. directly that scene. They're more just like the look and feel, the locations, the totally. scenarios a little bit more. Um, and then, of course, the the ending, which we'll get into when we discuss the ending of the film. So yeah, for sure. Well, to that um, end, Nate, like, do we want to actually like dig into the film now? Yeah, let's do it. So, how would you sum this film up in a sentence? Mm, all right. So, two women dissatisfied by their life Mm. go on a road trip together Mm -hmm. to escape the patriarchy Mm. that ends in tragedy Mm. okay no no spoilies but well yeah it's a little spoily but you know i mean well i mean no you know it's not gonna end well but well We're going to talk about spoilers because I've got some thoughts on it. Uh, Okay, well, no, that's great. So what is your background or history with this movie? Had you seen it before we did this? I don't think I have. I was talking to my wife about this, and I thought I had seen it. But then she (laughs) – this is kind of uh, ironic – but she was like, no, we were supposed to watch it, but then you had something to do, so we never watched it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so well, we watched it together. Go. We watched oh, it together. Oh, that's nice. That's and, nice. Um, yeah, so this, I think this was my first time seeing it, but it is one of those movies that's like so around and in mm-hmm. the zeitgeist that I really couldn't tell if I had seen it or not. Right. right. Like yeah, I yeah, thought, yeah. I was like, maybe I have seen it, because I, like, I remember the look and feel of it and the ending of course is everywhere and 
and all it's of funny that. too because it's an MGM movie and it's definitely one of the movies that like again watching a lot of DVDs in my time they would always start with sort of like that home, MGM home video and they would show sort of like the greatest moments of MGM movies oh, yeah. and like so many scenes are in that from this so like mm. I too had never seen this movie before it's been on yeah. my list for a while but it's also one of those ones where and I I keep coming back to it the American Film Institute top 100 films of all time or possibly 100 thrills or like it's one of those specials right. I had seen it had spoiled all of the like m- main scenes from this movie <laughs> <laughs> and as a result, I basically was like, well, I know everything from this movie now. So I kind of never got around to it. But yeah, um, I always kind of wanted to because it was kind of like this blind spot in multiple elements because like it's this like iconic sort of female focused film and it's this iconic Ridley Scott movie I hadn't seen. Yeah. So it was just like I was excited when we sort of like had an excuse to get into it. But then. As I was watching it, I was, like, bummed by just how many of these, like, wonderful moments. I was like, no, I've seen this before. Oh, I've seen this before. Oh, I've seen this a lot before. Right, right, right. Unfortunately, like, it did kind of impact my viewing of it. But, uh, again, we'll we'll get into that. Sure, sure. Well, I feel like before we continue, we need to at least have a bit of a disclaimer here that, you know, we are two dudes. Mm -hmm. um, Who are watching this movie. It is a feminist cinema milestone. So we have a limited perspective on this. And and I think, you know, we'll do our best to talk about it. But I've also done a lot of reading of women critics and journalists that I'm going to be citing throughout just to kind of hopefully provide a little bit of a different perspective than just the two of us. Um, We really should have had a guest for this now that we think about it. But it's, you know, whatever. It's here we are. We're recording now. So busy time of year. But in particular, I found this really kind of incredible deep dive about the making of the movie on Vanity Fair called The Ride of a Lifetime, and I would very much recommend checking that out. It just goes into so much detail about the original sort of writing of the movie, the directing of the movie, on set, all of the different um, actors involved, everything. So it's by Sheila Weller, and it's actually from 2012, so over a decade ago now, but still really an incredible resource. And also, you know, one of the sort of initial impetuses for looking at this movie again is that it was just accepted into the Criterion Collection this year. And as a part of that, there's also this really great essay collection called Three Roots Through Thelma and Louise that you can find on the Criterion Collection website. So I would also check that out. Three very different takes talking about the sort of the feminist side of it. There's one that actually talks about sort of the genre of the movie, which maybe we can talk a little bit about. And then another one that... I can't remember, (laughs) but it's also great. So I would recommend checking that out. Okay, well, let's do our plot synopsis, which we like to get it from, you know, unique-ish sources, not from Wikipedia or IMDb. And in this case, Nate, where did we get our synopsis from? Yeah, so this is from the 1992 Deluxe Letterbox Edition VHS uh, from MGM United Artists. I mean, it is actually kind of interesting to see a VHS that comes in a deluxe letterboxed edition, which I wonder if that was sort of like a Ridley Scott, like, no, it needs to be in letterbox, you know, sort of thing. Yeah, it's funny. I remember renting these from, like, Blockbuster. If the DVD was out, but they still had the VHS, I would, like, sometimes, Mm. you know, you'd make do. And the other ones that 
come to mind that I I vividly remember was I believe I rented a letterboxed huh. version of The Exorcist uh-huh. at one point and then Bram Stoker's Dracula was one that I remember okay. I think that was the first time I saw that movie was on a deluxe letterbox VHS so yeah. but yeah it was sort of like this mark of like well this is like this is film yeah, yeah. so you don't want to see a pan and scan version you need to see Letterboxed. I would not have guessed that this necessarily would be a film to receive the deluxe letterbox treatment, although I, it is I understand why, but... Yeah, the marketing of this movie, I think, is super, super interesting, so... Totally. Okay, well, here we go. Here's the plot synopsis. <clears throat> Fasten your seatbelts, because two of Hollywood's hottest women are... <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah. Are revving it up and taking it on the road. And their adventures will have the thrilling, life-affirming energy for which the best road movies are remembered. The New York Times. It's a quote from the New York Times. No, yeah, that's weird. weird. Uh, when unhappy housewife Thelma, played by Gina Davis, and her wise crackin' waitress friend Louise, Susan Sarandon, decide to take a break from their lives, Thelma from her chauvinistic husband and Louise from her commitment-shy musician boyfriend... He's a musician. Didn't, didn't track that. They embark on a trip that leads to a tragic incident at a roadside honky-tonk. <laughs> in an instant, their weekend getaway, in quotes, becomes just that as they flee across the American Southwest with the police a two-step behind. And the double entendres and puns in this. Yeah. With this limited edition letterboxed version, you can see this visually stunning film as director Ridley Scott intended in its full panoramic glory. Mm. A landmark film filled with truth, courage, and honesty, Thelma and Louise is truly a triumph, variety, of movie-making history. <laughs> it's a very weird description. I'm, I well, yeah. It's certainly flowery and riddled with puns, or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, I mean, I think this really speaks to the marketing aspect of this movie, which is really weird. Like, there's two things I really notice about this. Number one, they're trying to make it very upbeat and mm-hmm. kind of, like, fun, because I think they were really worried that it was too, like, hard to watch or too scary for people or too much or too yeah. feminist or too whatever, yeah. too something. And so I feel like they're really trying to soften it and be like, this is going to be fun, I promise. And then the other thing is that, like, this is, I think, one of the only VHSs I've that we've read at least, or that I really remember, where they have the reviews actually in the description. You know? Right, yeah, Rather yeah, than yeah. like just a separate thing on the DVD box, like they're actually incorporating it into the description to kind of be like, look, the New York Times thinks it's good, Variety thinks it's good. Right, In yeah, a way that feels a little desperate. <laughs> yeah, well, but also too, like the movie is kind of weird tonally. This is a weird comparison, but do you remember that show Weeds? Yeah, I didn't really watch Weeds, but yeah. Well, it's funny because I watched it with your wife in university. We, we used to get together <laughs> uh, in our dorm and watch it. But that's a show that would come to be known as the dramedy. It is a dramatic situation, but we keep it lighthearted with like jokes and funny situations throughout. Yeah, yeah. But that, I think, in like 1991 was less of a thing. And that's what this movie is. Like, this movie yeah. is simultaneously incredibly dark yeah. and. A comedic, rompy road movie. It oscillates between these two sort of tones. And I think, at the time anyway, like, marketing teams didn't really know, how do we market something like this? Because you can't market it as a straight comedy, because it's not. But you also can't market it as a straight drama, because it's not. And 
This would be before, like, even Fargo, which is one of the, like, sort of that first, like, dark comedy that really breaks through the mainstream. And I think Fargo's more of a comedy than this is, but, like, this is sort of one of those... that's interesting. That's an interesting question. You don't think so? I think it is, like... I think, what I would say is I think that their comedy and their drama or thriller aspects are more integrated... Whereas yeah. th- this is more back and forth where it's like, yes, there are scenes but, where it's like, no, this is a drama and this is like serious yeah, and yeah, scary. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, then yeah, there yeah. are Absolutely. scenes where it's like a straight up comedy. Fargo is much more dry and kind of like, yeah, but Fargo's subtle. got all the accents and the like, yeah. Yeah. It, it, this is literally just like spewing out of my brain as I, <laughs> as we talk. Like I never thought about Fargo while I was watching. This, it's not like, a bad comparison. It's, though, no, actually, it's not totally. a bad comparison. Yeah. Maybe I'm a genius, but yeah. um, Coen Brothers no, I, vibes a little bit. I yeah, mean, a little bit. Not quite as, as zany as the Coen Brothers, but yeah, that, there's that there's, same balance of, of, you know, comedy and thriller sort of aspects. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. Well, to that end, like, where the hell did this come from? Watching the opening titles, apart from Ridley Scott, mm-hmm. I didn't recognize anybody involved with this. So, like, who yeah. is this writer and where did she come from? Yeah, so the writer is Callie Curry. This is her first screenwriting credit, but she'd been around in the business for a while. Okay. And she really kind of imagined this originally as an indie feature that she would mm. do. She had a, a producer friend and they were like sort of shopping it around trying to figure out who could basically finance it so that they could do it themselves as like a small, cheap feature. And ultimately, they landed with Ridley Scott's production company. And that's kind Mm. of how it all came together. But yeah, she based a lot of this on sort of personal experience, not like... Like bits and pieces, you know. Right. Not the, she, not she the, didn't. The real she plot. didn't accidentally murder her friend's assailant. No, but there are a lot of like interesting parallels. So, for example, mm. the sort of relationship was apparently based partly on her relationship with this country singer Pam Tillis and herself when mm. they were both working at this well-known Nashville club, and Corey was working as a waitress. <laughs> and okay. Pam Tillis was working as a singer, sort of up-and-coming singer there. Uh, but, right. you know, at that point in time, like, neither of them were feeling so great about their situation. But they had this kind of, like, funny relationship, gallows humor sort of thing going on. And Tillis was a bit like Thelma. And mm. K- Curry was a bit like Louise in terms right. of their personalities. Tillis was very sort of scatterbrained, and but also really, like, funny and friendly and all of that sort of thing. And Curry was always a little bit more, like, jaded and a little bit more world-weary and all of that kind of stuff. Um, Wisecracking, as the (laughs) back of the VHS says. Also, uh, Curry apparently used to work on music videos for Motley Crue and Foreigner. Oh, okay. Which you can imagine what those those music yeah, videos were like. I can only imagine what those sets were like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like both the end product and the process of getting there are like the antithesis of this movie in a lot of ways, yeah, probably 100%. in terms of, you know, just being absolutely demeaning to women and probably a toxic environment in a bunch of ways. And on that set, she used to work there with the producer and they would always say back and forth, well, you know, you get what you settle for. And that mm. line sort of ends up being like one of the sort of the key themes in this movie that comes back again and again and again. This is all from that Vanity Fair article, by the way. Right. So just shut that out again. The other incident that happened to her that sort of inspired this was she was mugged two times right in succession 
And one of them Jesus. was actually coming out out of, I think, an acting workshop or something like that with Larry David, of all people. <laughs> oh, my God. I can Which only is, imagine that. <laughs> so there's that. Um, Jesus. But, but the other time, she was with a friend, and, you know, she was not making a lot of money at the time. And this guy right. is bugging her, stealing her purse, and she won't let go of the purse. And her friend is like, you need to let go of this purse. Like, you need to let him have it because, you know, this isn't going to end well. And so right. she gives it up. Uh, but afterward, upon reflection, she was sort of like, if I had a gun, I would have killed that guy. And mm. that was sort of like one of the other elements that, of course, like comes into the story right. as yeah, well. Yeah. Of like, just like that sort of fight or flight moment and the circumstances that could put you in the space to commit murder. So right. she actually went on after this to have a pretty robust career, both as a writer and a director. So... Other movies and things you may know her from, she wrote and directed Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen it, but I do remember I when that came out. I have not seen it either, but, but, you know, I was like, oh, that movie, of course. Yeah. Right. Okay, I remember when that came out. I feel like, you know, we were pretty young when that came out, and I think it was kind of targeting exactly the opposite demographic from where we were at at that point Absolutely, in time. Absolutely, yeah. Young men versus, you know, maybe middle-aged women. Uh, she also is heavily involved with Nashville, the TV series. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, with like Connie Britton and all those. Exactly, those guys. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So that has actually been on my watch list for a while. I, I think that yeah, I hear know, it's supposed to be really pretty good. decent. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, lots of other credits after this, but this is really her breakout. So as I said, she ends up getting into Ridley Scott's production company, right? With this movie, and he takes an interest eventually. And of course, Ridley Scott by this point, right? He's well-known for Alien, well-known for Blade Runner. Um, mm-hmm. Well-known for that 1984 Macintosh commercial, or right, and which came out in 1983, but yeah. Exactly. Other than that, it's mostly like ads and music videos at this point. Yeah. Like, that's still a lot of what he's doing. And the other thing that's interesting is, like, right before this, he had a bunch of kind of, like, flops. Um, mm. So, Legend, I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah, like, it's sitting on a hard drive of mine to watch because, like, I'm so curious about it because it is such this, like, legendary legendary (laughs) flop, but has, like, Tim Curry, Tom Cruise. Like, it seems like it's It's kind of a cult classic, I think, now, but, like, was totally a pan at the time. He did Someone to Watch Over Me from 1987, which was Mm. just, like, you know, box office disappointment, mixed reviews. I don't really know anything about that movie. And another one that I don't know is called Black Rain, which, get this, number one at the box office, but another critical pan. Okay. And so, and like kind of the through line with all of these was more style than substance, which... It's funny because like I alluded to earlier that this was sort of like this blind spot in the career of Ridley Scott because I can't remember what movie my cousin and I were going to see, Scott. Hi, Scott. I know you listen. Um, (laughs) At least you should be. Um... But we were seeing something. It might have been The Martian or one of the alien s- s- legacy sequels or yeah, yeah. something. Prometheus. Or possibly Robin Hood. He's like, well, this is going to be good, right? Like, it's really Scott. And he's great. And I'm like, is he great? Because, like, <laughs> yes, Alien is great. And Blade Runner is great. And The Martian is great. Mm-hmm. But, like... He's very hit or miss. And I literally pulled up his, like, IMDb, and I just went through, and I was like, not a good movie. Not a good movie. Actually a great movie. Not a yeah. good movie. Not yeah. a good movie. Really great movie. And he's just like, and, and granted, like, for those who don't know, like, he famously has this, like, art school background. He mm-hmm. was a commercial and music video director. And not to say that those guys can't be 
good filmmakers like David Fincher, one of my all time sure. favorite filmmakers, like that was his bread and butter was making music videos and commercials. But I think because music video and commercials tend to be more style over substance, that can be sort of the criticism of them right. as filmmakers is that there is a tendency to lean a little too heavily into the style and not necessarily heavily into the substance. So that's why when he makes a movie like this, it's like super interesting because for starters, it's a male director directing a very female centric movie. Right. But this is also not the kind of movie Ridley Scott is known for making. Like he's known for making these like over the top, heavily like Mm -hmm. art directed, like big budget or like, you know, Alien was not a huge budget, but like, but it looks th- like it is. Yeah, but it feels the, like it is. it's it's a ve- like genre movies. He makes yeah. genre movies with a very distinct, unique visual style, and this is, I guess, it's in a sense a road movie, but like, it's not a that kind of movie. Yeah. So he's a very interesting director to be taking this on. Totally. And the interesting thing is, like, he looked for years for another director to do this movie. Right, um, I had read that he didn't really want to direct it, and it fell to him in the end because nobody else was all that interested. Well, he the way that he described it was that like he would have these interviews with all these male directors, other male of directors, course. and two things would be happening. Number one, he'd always kind of be like, eh, I, don't, I don't know, I don't think they're quite right for it. I don't, I don't know about that. And the other thing is, he would always be selling them on the movie and how important mm. this movie is, how great the script is, all the potential of the movie. And he would later say, he didn't realize it at the time, but he's kind of talking himself into making this movie by nice. giving these pitches, right? So, so yeah, eventually, like, I think he gets the script in something like 1984, something I didn't realize it like took that. that long for it to get made. Yes, it took a little while to pull it all together. And eventually, he decided to be the director. But the other thing that's kind of interesting about, like, you know, why Ridley Scott? like Yeah, because this that really, every from the start of this, I'm just like, why this guy? Like, why yeah. of all the sort? Like, it's funny, not to, like, jump ahead, but I was recently revisiting Sands of the Lambs uh-huh. and, like, Jonathan Demme. And I'm like, this feels like a movie that Jonathan Demme should have made. Because, oh, like, he he's, yeah. like, a, such an empathetic filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He's fascinated by people. You know, he understands female characters much better than most male directors do mm-hmm. like whereas i and and granted alien very famously has one of the strongest female leads in cinematic history like everybody loves ripley but the thing that nobody really talks about is that ripley was never originally written to be a woman right. none of those characters were written to be any gender and they just sort yes. of like divvied it out as the film was being made and then she goes on to become this iconic character perhaps more because of Aliens and the subsequent sequels and what's mm-hmm. done there. So so it's like, yes, he has a good track record of strong female heroes. <laughs> a strong but, female hero. <laughs> I, well, okay, fair. One strong female hero, but also kind of by accident and not necessarily mm-hmm. because of any of his decisions. So, Well, okay. Well, so the, the, here's my, my take on this is that, like, why would he want to do this? Other than just the fact that he thought it was an interesting project, strong potential, but again, like, he just had a bunch of kind of, like, pans and flops, right? Yeah, right. Some of them did well at the box office, but c- critics didn't like it. Some of them didn't do well at the box office, and the critics didn't like it, right? <laughs> right. And, and the ma- one of the main things is, like, style over substance, man. Like, there's just nothing under the hood. And so this has the potential to be not that. It's very clear from the script that there is right. a lot going on. and There's so, a lot of substance here. Right. So, like, can he use this to kind of prove that actually he can be a substantial filmmaker? I bet that that's part of it. 
The other interesting thing is like, okay, well, why would anyone think he's right for this? And it does kind of go back to Alien. So you're familiar with the Bechdel test, right? Of course. Right. So, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically a, a, a couple different rules about um, the role of women in movies, right? And it's something that you can kind of apply to different movies. So basically the movie has to have at least two women in it. They have to talk to each other and they have to talk about something other than a man. So, you know, right. this podcast would not pass the Bechdel test. Um, <laughs> no, not so much. Right. But what the interesting thing is, so in the original comic by Alison Bechdel, which is called The Rule, the character that talks about the Bechdel test, the last movie that she was able to watch was Alien. Oh, interesting. Yes. And the comic is from 1985. And, of course, Alien came out in 1979. Right, yeah. So her point is, it's, it's been, a, been while. a while, right? Yeah. Um, but even within that sort of world of, you know, man, like, media is so sexist. There are just so few opportunities for women, so few female characters, so few female characters that talk to other female characters. It's <laughs> yeah. just such a limited thing that that movie still kind of, like, holds a bit of a spot. And yes, like, I would agree that, like, the original intent of the movie is definitely, like, pretty gender blind, you could say, but also probably, like, intended to be all men originally, <laughs> right? But then they cast it differently than that. Mm -hmm. And my understanding from this article was that Scott did have to make the case for Sigourney Weaver in that role um, okay. of Ridley. And so because he was able to use that leverage that he had done this before successfully to convince Ladd, the producer, that Davis and Sarandon were right for the roles. I mean, and this is the thing, because, like, to your point of, like, he's had a few flops or less successful films. You know, in 1991, I don't think that this is a surefire hit. No. Or at least in the eyes of film executives, you know, like, totally. certainly there's this, we now know, like, make make movies about women they exist and they'll go see them like it's do it, we know it's, that it, well we know <laughs> that i don't know that yeah exactly yeah. i don't know if movie executives understand that yet yes. but this is 1991 this is the year terminator 2 comes out like mm -hmm. which oh, granted also has a very strong female protagonist yeah, sure. um but is certainly a movie much more tailored to young right, the audience boys. is not necessarily women yeah or not and the audience to be women and the audience of that film is definitely not showing up to go see Thelma and Louise. Yeah, like probably it's, not. It's, so this is not Ridley being like, well, I got a surefire hit on my hand. Or maybe what I should be saying is that on paper, this is not a surefire hit. But I've read this script and I know that it actually is a surefire hit. And if right. I can cast this properly and shoot this competently, we will have a hit on our hands. Right, right. Yeah, It's. I think it is absolutely... Uh, from the producer's standpoint, looks like a gamble on paper, for sure. This movie feels a lot less dated than I was expecting it to. Yeah. Um, yes. But as we've discussed many times on this podcast, looking back at some of these older films, it's hard to contextualize what the climate was that they were being released under. So yeah. what is the climate like? Is this the kind of film that is going to sort of be met with a great deal of trepidation and sort of resistance. Right. So this movie is coming out in what feminist writer Susan Faludi called the backlash period, right? Mm. Like Reagan and Bush coming into office. 
and right. in America and really the sort of rise of conservatism and the backlash against feminism. And to give a sense of sort of what movies are like right now, there's this great passage. Again, this is from the Criterion Collection, uh, essay collection that I was talking about. This is one called At the Wheel by uh, Rebecca Traster. And she says, on big screens, working women were shoulder padded and chilly. They chose promotions over love. They took jobs that forced their poor husbands to parent or cook. <laughs> when they did uh, exhibit sexual desire, it was rapacious. They wanted love so badly they'd boil children's bunnies to get it. Like Right. That- yeah, I guess that's true, right? You've got Mr. Mom with yep. my boy Michael Keaton. You've got oh, Fatal Attraction with yeah. <laughs> not my boy Michael Douglas. Yeah, But yeah, you're right. Yeah. I guess that is sort of the climate or the era. The erotic thriller was very popular at this time. And then yeah, exactly. obviously, we- which is a very conservative genre where you're sort of like it's all about, you know, the violation of gender roles and like women's sexual desire being pathologized. They're the villains, mm-hmm. you know, like all this kind of stuff. Right. And so those are the movies that have just been coming out when this is released. Right. And then all of a sudden, this movie, as well as a bunch of other things happening around the same time, kind of changed the whole situation. So around the same time, you have Time magazine having a cover story about date rape, right? Oh, wow. And like that whole, that term just suddenly being in the pop culture and that the whole idea of consent, that's all suddenly in the zeitgeist. That happens in June 1991. So just before this. Three weeks later, this movie's oh, wow. on the cover of Time magazine. Wow. Right? And with a big headline that says, Why Thelma and Louise Strikes a Nerve. <laughs> Which, you okay. know, the answer so is three weeks prior, right? Among other right. things. There were definitely critics of this movie, but also it struck a nerve with women who were like, yes, this is right. what I have experienced or this is what my friends have experienced. And like really recognizing something on the screen that spoke to them. October 1991, so just later the same year, you have the testimony of Anita Hill that right. Clarence Thomas, a Supreme Court nominee, had sexually harassed her. <laughs> yeah, right? great, great and guy. Then, I'm so glad he's yeah, still around. Right. <sighs> uh, yeah. And then that really leads to this election in 1992, where you have four female senators elected, as well as Hillary Clinton coming to the Oval Office as First Lady. Right. And all of that leads to this sort of broad declaration that this is the year of the woman. Right. That's You have this sort of like really broad public discourse around women and their role in society, around rape, consent. This is all like happening in broader culture. So this movie is really like part of that whole explosion. Interesting. Interesting. That's good to know because I think that helps sort of set the mindset for where all of this is coming from. Although, as you said, like, clearly it's actually taken like 10 years-ish for this movie to get made. But by the time it finally is being made, this is the culture in which it's being thrust upon. Right. Okay, well, let's tuck into some of the, like, highlights and lowlights of this movie. I mean, right from the get-go, it sort of sets a very interesting tone. You know, it's interesting how, like, the the letterboxed deluxe edition talks about the panoramic (laughs) views of the film. And, like, literally my first note in my notes is, holy shit, this movie looks incredible. Yeah, totally. I think that's probably the thing that's clearest about Ridley Scott. Not to give him all the credit, because obviously there's a DP on this as well, who deserves a lot of credit. But, you know, his movies always do have a lot of visual flair. 
you know? Absolutely. And, and the way this movie starts, it's all about the landscape, the feel, the music, right? Weirdly, this movie opens in black and white, mm-hmm. which I, you know, was very surprised by. But you get this sort of landscape in black and white, and then the camera sort of pans over to a different area, and you get the score, you see more landscape, and then the color slowly fades in, and it's like a road with a mountain. One of the few trivia things that I did come across was that originally the movie didn't start this way. It was going to be one of those things of, like, main titles on end, I think is what the term is. Okay. Um, It wasn't going to have, like, an opening credit sequence, Mm -hmm. but when Ridley heard Hans Zimmer's score, that sort of opening theme, he was like... Well, we're doing an opening title sequence because we gotta, we gotta, people need to hear this music. So that's where that sort of opening sequence comes from. I don't know that it was ever really intended to serve that purpose. And again, this is just like the editor in me watching it. I noticed the opening is clearly, it's been slowed down in post. And yes. it's before computer generated. You couldn't do like interpretation of frames. So it's the it's actually like there's like a stutteriness because they're literally just duplicating the same frame over and over again to kind right. of get you that slow motion. But he needed to do something in order to like slow everything down in order to hear this epic score that Zimmer has composed. Right. It's almost like an overture in the way mm-hmm. it feels. But yeah, that makes sense because it is just very straightforward, very visual. It's all about the landscape. You know, it's thematic because you do have that road, you know, as part of the landscape. I feel like that's the big thing. But it's an interesting way to open a movie that is so much about the characters. Well, I want to talk a little bit about the cinematographer quickly just while we're on that subject. So his name is Adrian Biddle. And are are you familiar with his work? Well, you are familiar with his work, whether or not you know it. Because (laughs) do you want to know what his first credit as cinematographer was? And this is actually kind of interesting considering who directed this. Sure. It, what is it? It's it's Aliens, the sequel oh, to Alien. So not Ridley Scott's movie, but the James Cameron sequel, which yeah. I f- I famously don't really like that movie. Um, yeah, but that's wrong. that's it's well, a good movie. okay. It's They're no, both good. I different. Yeah, it's just very different, and that's why it's not my cup of tea. But other titles include Judge Dredd, the Sylvester the old Stallone Judge Dredd. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. The Stallone movie. Yeah. Uh, the World Is Not Enough, the James Bond okay. movie, which is actually okay. the first James Bond movie I saw in theaters as a like ten-ish year old. Uh, it's also very bad. Don't watch it. Uh, <laughs> the Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Uh huh. Great movie. V for Vendetta. Okay. Very stylized sort of look. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, five stars, no notes, perfect movie, The Princess Bride. Oh, interesting. So. A wide variety of, of sort of things. Yes, I, well, I was going to say, quite the range. They're all very kind of different from each other. All genre, for sure, which, mm-hmm, you know, makes mm-hmm. sense how you end up with our friend uh, Ridley Scott. The other interesting thing that I noted is that a lot of the folks involved on the production side of this are British. Oh. Right? You got Ridley Scott. You right. have Adrian Biddle is British. Yeah. The editor's British. The production designer's huh. British. So it's really interesting to think about them making this very deeply American movie as Brits. Yeah, Um, totally. And I think, you know, there is a certain double-edged sword where, like, as an outsider, you know, speaking as someone who's a Canadian who moved to the United States, as an outsider, on one hand, you can make a lot of assumptions or mistakes that you don't get because you don't live there, you don't understand the nuance, but also you can see things with fresh eyes. 
as well. And totally. so like I f- it, this movie really feels like the latter where I feel like they are really bringing fresh eyes to the American landscape to the point where like <laughs> apparently when they were scouting for this movie, they did a lot of legwork to like see the different places that kind of knew roughly the geography of where the road trip was going to take place. They're going through all these different states. And after a while, Ridley Scott was like, this all looks like the exact same. Why the hell are we doing this? Well, I'll just shoot it in California near Los Angeles. And so that's what, like, almost all of this is actually shot in Southern California, except that's for hilarious. a few scenes that are shot in Utah, like, as they get closer to the the quote-unquote Grand the Canyon. The quote-unquote Grand Canyon, which is not the Grand Canyon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, cool. right. Then they go to Utah, and that's, like, a very distinctly different landscape. But right. a, a lot of the stuff that's supposed to be, like, Oklahoma or whatever is, like, not, in fact, Oklahoma. It's got a really distinctive look and does some really interesting things with the landscape. I mean, one of the things that struck me was that there are moments in this movie where the landscape is almost sci-fi. Yeah, totally. It reminds me of some of those sort of post-apocalyptic visions or just like futuristic visions. Like you saw the new Star Trek movies, right? Like the J.J. Abrams reboot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you remember there's that scene in the first movie of those where Kirk is like, you know, jetting across like a desert landscape and there's all Mm -hmm. this big infrastructure and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. This movie kind of feels like that where it's like you have like big rig trucks and and huge highway overpasses and all this kind of like infrastructure and then just like desert. It's like machines, people, desert. It's funny. The image that I kept coming back to because I had just recently rewatched it is Billy Friedkin's Sorcerer which I don't, I, I you have not seen, seen that film yet. Yeah, so th- there's a scene at the end when Roy Scheider is driving this truck through this sort of desolate desert landscape, but it's... Isn't that like, like the whole movie? <laughs> well, no, no, because it's mostly in the jungle, but then oh, the sort of final God. like 10 minutes are through this sort of desert landscape, but it's he's hallucinating, and that's what I kept coming back to is this sort mm. of like psychedelic horrifying ending to Sorcerer because it's this weird thing of like as they get deeper and deeper in trouble the the desert starts to become larger and more overwhelming and it's this wonderful play of like you know I'm sure it's metaphorical and someone smarter than me can articulate (laughs) this better but that is the thing is that the as as they get deeper into the desert they also are finding themselves deeper and deeper in trouble yeah totally well and after the first sort of third of this movie basically all of it with them takes place outdoors Mm -hmm. they like barely ever go inside and again in one of those criterion collection essays they were talking about the fact that like the indoors becomes a place of danger in this movie Mm. where it's like whenever they're inside well they're like robbing a convenience store or (laughs) you know or like the bar scene right where there's this assault it's like the interior is actually the scary place and the outdoors is free. But totally, the landscape kind of gets more dramatic, I guess, as the movie goes on, too. Well, we, we, we've we sort of, like, we've referenced them a bunch. Let's talk about the titular Thelma and Louise. Like, yes. at the end of the day, this really is a two-hander. I mean, there are other Absolutely. characters in and around them. But this entire movie rests on the backs of these two characters and the two actors playing them. So let's kind of dig into them because you know i i think spoiler alert 
they're great. Like oh, they yeah. they're so good. Absolutely. And I think a huge reason why this film is so successful. Yes, it's gorgeous. Yes, it's got a great score and all that. But it's the performances that Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis give. One hundred percent. I mean, like right after this sort of opening shot and the, and the score and all of that, you basically get the character introductions for those two characters, right? First, you see Louise, Susan Sarandon, and she's like a waitress, and she gives Thelma a call, right, while she's at work. And you get this kind of like back and forth between the two of them, and you immediately get like a sense of they're two different characters uh, and their relationship. relationship. Yeah, exactly. With each other, exactly. They're kind of an odd couple a little bit. Yep, totally. um, Where you have, you know, Louise is a little bit more like gruff, surly. Headstrong. And also very like in control, I guess. Yes. Whereas Thelma is, like, scattered all over the place. Like, in the early scene, you see her as kind of a doormat with her husband, who's an asshole. Yep. You know? (laughs) Yes. And so, like, they're just these very polar opposites. Like, one of the best things that the script does, I'm assuming, is you immediately find out they're going on a road trip together. They're supposedly going to go fishing. And they agree to pack and meet. And I think Louise says... You know, okay, just pack everything, basically. (laughs) And so you get to see how those two characters interpret those instructions. Packing everything, yeah. And they're completely different, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Louise is, is like, you know, she's putting everything in baggies. It's, like, all super organized. And she's packing super light. Whereas Thelma's like throwing everything in, like all this. Yeah, she literally has like three suitcases for a weekend. Like, right? She's got so much stuff. She like brings like a giant like net for fishing, and just like (laughs) it's she's kind of all over the place a little bit. And I just love the way they immediately set up these two characters. I want to talk about the actors themselves a little bit, though, because were you familiar with them before from their other work outside of this? Yeah. So it's kind of weird what I was familiar with. So I would say I was more familiar with Gina Davis. Yeah. Originally. I mean, I I would say I'm more familiar with the work of Gina Davis and more familiar of Susan Sarandon as just... A, a person, person in, in Hollywood. Hollywood. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I I think probably I saw Gina Davis first. Probably the first thing I saw her in was Beetlejuice. But I don't know if I necessarily mm. clocked her in that as, like... Right. Because, yeah. But the movie I remember her the most from is A League of Their Own. Exactly. I was going to say, like... Which is an mo- amazing movie. When you think I of Gina Davis, movie. you think of A League of Their Own. I mean, yes, yes. Beetlejuice. But, like, yeah, that's her... It's an amazing role iconic performance outside of this, I guess. And she's so good in that movie. It's it's such a great movie. It is a great movie. But I think because of that movie, because that movie's a period piece, I think I always thought that Gina Davis was older than she was. Oh, interesting. Because I don't think I knew when that movie came out for when I was a kid. Right, right, And it's a period piece. And and she has this sort of classic look to her as well Mm -hmm. that, like, I don't know when I thought that movie was from, you know? And then also, like, the interesting thing about her, of course, is the foundation that she started. Yeah. The Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media. Right. And through some of the stuff that I've done at work, we've interviewed her specifically about that. And then she she actually had a documentary at TIFF a few years ago about sort of this idea of, like, female representation in media. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of, like, the thing that I most recently associate her with is not necessarily even her 
work as an actor, but sort of her work as like an activist and a leader within this industry in trying to reshape our thinking of representation and gender equality within the industry, which right. uh, famously is pretty terrible. And continues to be pretty terrible. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. I, was, yep. I was actually reading a piece of research, I think, that came from the Institute fairly recently, which was talking about, you know, the continued unbalance. But one of the most depressing examples that they brought up was that even in movies that are, you know, the audience is women, the, the main characters are women, the male characters still get more talking time on screen. Oh, Jesus. Including, <laughs> like, The Hunger Games, for example. Mm, right? Interesting. It has that problem, which is right. crazy when you think yeah. about it. Um, yeah, totally. You know, not the only measure. It's like, you could argue, yeah, Katniss Everdeen's a very quiet character. I don't know. But still, it seems insane. Um, yeah. So, yeah, she continues to do some amazing work in that regard. Some other things that I didn't know about Gina Davis. I didn't know that she got her start in Tootsie. That was her oh. like, her debut role was in Tootsie. I don't re- I mean granted I haven't seen that movie in like 20 years but like yeah, I don't I've, I've only I don't seen that movie remember once, her in that. and I don't particularly like it. So anyway, let's talk about Susan Sarandon. The movie I most associate her with, yeah. which is a movie that I don't even know that I've se- I well I know I have not seen it in full is the movie Stepmom with Julia Roberts <laughs> where she, That's where the movie yeah, because like that's I just I don't know why that is if I think of Susan Sarandon, oh, I think shit. of stepmom or I think of her being on Conan and like all of her weird politics stuff that she's done in recent years. And sure. like and the, the, the bit where like Nathan Fielder came on, but he brought Susan Sarandon. Like I just again, like I said, I don't think of her as an actor so much as mm. I think of her as like a Hollywood personality. who's sure. just like around. Sure. But when I do think of her as an actor, for whatever reason, it's in Stepmom with Julia Roberts. Because, like, that was a movie that my mom and my aunt rented one March break when we went to stay at my aunt's house and they <laughs> cried. And I was like, why are you guys crying? I don't understand. I mean, I do now I understand. Sure, why, sure, like, sure. Obviously, like, I've seen her in other things, probably most famously in Rocky Horror, a movie yeah. which I, I don't particularly like. So, And it's also, like, again, like, that's not... The Susan Sarandon now, like that's no, of course a not. Very Maybe. different role for her, which is interesting. But I, for someone who is a name that I immediately know yeah. and recognize, yeah, I could not name you five movies she's in. Sure, like yeah. gun to my head, I would say like Thelma and Louise. I don't know that I would even necessarily remember Rocky Horror. I yeah. would say Stepmom, and then that I would freeze. Wow. Like I could not name you. Okay. Two more movies. That's a very different experience. This is very interesting. Okay, so, well, yeah, so who? what do you know her from? So I think the first movie I saw Susan Sarandon in was Bull Durham. That's the baseball movie? The baseball movie, yeah. Okay. And she's like a main character in that. Like, it's a pretty meaty role. It's a good role, I think. But she's kind of a ball buster in that movie. It's great. Mm. Um, and then the other movie that I really associate with her with, which is maybe not surprising, is Dead Man Walking. Oh, yeah, you love that movie. Yeah, so do your I, parents. Yes, I, well, so both. I really like that movie, but but my parents really, really like that movie. Mm-hmm. And we, like, owned the soundtrack to that movie. Because it's Cat Stevens, I think, maybe. I was going to say, I remember one time I came over to your house, there and you your go. dad and your mom were sitting in your living room <laughs> listening to the soundtrack yeah. of Dead Man Walking. And I was like, 
the fuck is, what, what is going on here? <laughs> they love it. They love it. Well, but it's, well there but, you yeah, go. I, I, I think I probably knew the soundtrack to that movie before I saw the movie. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then eventually saw the movie. I was like, oh, that's a really good movie. And she's amazing in that movie. It's Sean Penn is the uh, I think titular so. dead man? I think so. Uh, I haven't, I've only seen it like I've never once, seen it, so. Uh, because it's, shocker, it's kind of a heavy movie. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't remember it super well, but I do remember liking it a lot. And I remember okay. her being really incredible. Yes, it's Sean Penn. Sean mm, okay. Penn, Susan Sarandon, directed by Tim Robbins. Go for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, and then th- this is the other crazy thing. So sh- S- Sarandon or Sarandon, I don't really actually, I don't actually know how it's pronounced, but mm. I've always pronounced it Sarandon. Yeah. But I believe that her ex-husband, who Sarandon comes from, is mm-hmm. Chris Sarandon. Do you know who he is? No. Okay. Well, he's the evil prince in The Princess Bride. Taking oh. it back to that. Oh. That's Chris Sarandon. Okay. And he also plays Al Pacino's lover in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, okay. And I think he won an Oscar for that performance, or at least nominated. Yeah. And he's only in the movie for like 50. But that's, so that's her ex-husband. Okay. Who okay. she got her name. But then even though they got divorced very early on, she kept the last name Sarandon. So I know these things about Susan Sarandon. Just don't know any movies that she's been in, apparently. apparently. So Apparently. All this to say, they're both excellent. Totally. They're amazing. And this was interesting in doing research for this, that like there were a bunch of alternative castings for, mm. for these two characters. And I was curious if any of these resonated with you for, like, who an alternative pairing could have been. So okay, when Curry was writing the script, apparently she was imagining the roles for Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand. That's not the craziest thing I've ever heard. I, I could, yeah. I very much could see that. Yeah. Like, that totally aligns. Right. Well, I mean, even just like the, the accents and the sort of yes. southernness of it. Yeah. Like, thinking of, at the time, Holly Hunter would have done... Um, I would be thinking of her, this is the era of, like, Raising Arizona. Yeah. And then Frances McDormand would have been pre-Fargo, so it would have been, like, well, Blood Simple. There is, like, a Cohen connection here, right? Yeah. Where it's well, like, and because they were friends, all of them. Did you know, like, Holly Hunter, Francis McDormand, right. the Coen brothers, and Barry Sonnenfeld, like, they were all, like, roommates and friends, and then obviously, right. like, but one then of the Coens the married Cur- Francis. Curry's clearly thinking, like, oh, yeah, yeah. those actresses are, like, the, that's the vibe, which is really But I totally like, could see that, like, that, yeah. I, you know, Holly Hunter would probably play the more straight-laced one. Wait, the, like the Louise? Mm-mm-mm. No, oh, interesting. No, raising wanted... Arizona though. Raising Arizona. Holly oh, Hunter. Right, right, at this right. Point yeah, okay. Was like motormouth, like all over. Yeah, the place. yeah, yeah. Like, you're you right. Could, you're right. You could. She could have totally done the. I, I'm pretty. I mean, sure they really. Francis McDormand. Either one been, of them could have done either Louise. one of them. Like that's the brilliance yes. of that pairing. Is that like True. I could see either True. one. Yeah, they totally sort of taking either. Swapped. Yeah, but but who else is involved? Because I know it wasn't just them. So two people that were offered the roles. Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep together. Oh, that would that would have been terrible. I, that would <laughs> be a horrible movie. I don't think that, that would not have worked for me. <laughs> I mean, I mean love, you know how I feel Meryl about Street, Meryl Streep, but but mm, <clears throat> yeah, but yeah. I just well, don't, I, don't, I don't, but that's fine. And then this is the other one that was really interesting. So these two were actually attached to Star, and then okay, and, I think I read about this. Yeah, and they had to turn it down because they wouldn't make up their mind about the director. And so it just dragged on right. forever. And they're like, no, we, we have to do other things. Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer. 
Yeah, I mean, I those those two actors are incredible. Yes, and it's also interesting that it's those two because again. Sounds of the Lambs thing. Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer was who was originally wanted for Clarice, and then she didn't end up doing it. And Jody was sort of like the second choice, and she fought super hard to get that role. Yep. We'll cover that movie one day. So that's a really interesting pairing, but I don't know that it would have worked as well. I don't think they would the necessarily. Tone is, feels really different to me. Yeah. Like, like, I think that's the thing about Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand is like, I could feel the tone of this movie with those two. Totally. But but Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer, it's kind of a slightly different vibe. Again, love them both, but it doesn't totally work for me. But Michelle Pfeiffer is the one who tells Ridley Scott that he should direct it. Oh, interesting. When she's they leaving. Wor- were they working together on something? They Are were they... working together on this because she was attached. And when she was on her way out the door, she was basically like, you should direct this. Like, you Interesting. need to direct this. And that was sort of the thing that tipped him over the edge to be like, okay, man, I should direct this. Hmm. Obviously. Well, th- thanks, yeah. Michelle. <laughs> yeah, totally. A lot of pieces fell into place. I, I love her. I, can I just, I, yes. sh- I think she's so underrated as an actor. Agreed. And like everything she's in, she's fucking phenomenal. And I'm so glad that she's kind of sort of started to have a resurgence in her yeah. career. Like she kind of disappeared for a while. And then yeah. she was in the Murder on the Orient Express and like, steals the show she rules put her in more things except for scarface scarface sucks but that's, <laughs> that's not her fault <laughs> that's not her fault no um and i mean thank god that gina davis was so tenacious because all the while throughout this like she's gunning for this role and mm. she, originally she wanted to be louise interesting and had her agent call ridley scott every week for about a year <laughs> Wow. To just be like, I want the role, still want the role, still want the role, still want the role, still want the role. And eventually she like got the audition and Ridley Scott was like, I think you're more of a Thelma. And she's like, yeah, totally. I could be Thelma. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just, just put me in the just damn movie. The movie. Yeah. That's wild, though. I, I, This would be a very different movie if she were the Louise. Very different vibe. Not to say that I don't think she could do it, because, like, she's a very talented actor. Yeah. She could do whatever, and, and but like, it's just like... Yeah, I mean, like, League of Their Own is kind of proof that I think she could have mm. done that role as well. But Susan Sarandon is just, like, so perfect for it that oh, she brings so such a different energy to it. It all worked out for the best, in my opinion. So the other character we're introduced to right off the bat is Thelma's husband. <laughs> yeah. Daryl. Um, who was played by Christopher McDonald. What do you, because immediately I was like, I know this actor. What do I know this actor from? And then it clicked. He's one of those guys, right? He's one of those guys that's in a lot of things. Again, first movie I know him for 100% is Happy Gilmore. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. Happy Gilmore. He's the asshole in Happy Gilmore. But he's also been in you know, the second movie. I don't think I've only ever seen him in three movies, probably. But he feels like one of those guys that's everywhere. Like, yeah, totally. Uh, but the Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, he's Tappy. Yeah, Requiem for a Dream. And Quiz Show. Have you ever seen that movie? No, it's been on my watch list forever. And it's like yeah, one of the good. first things I saw was on Disney Plus, And I like, because it's, it's Robert Redford. Uh, yeah, it's Robert Redford. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, I have not seen it, but it's been like something I've been meaning to watch for some time now. And if it weren't for the fact that I have so many <laughs> movies to watch right now, maybe <laughs> this would be the kick in the pants to finally go watch it. But and he's great at playing this sort of like scumbag kind of character. Yes, um, he's pretty young like, here, though. I think even he's in, super young. Even here. in Happy Gilmore, he looks older than this. Yes, and that's yeah, well, only yeah, like he's, a few years later. But he plays sort of like just douchebag kind of 
asshole like he's the perfect sort of like asshole husband yes character yes there's there's a great line from the script that i thought summed this up so perfectly curry writes about this character polyester was made for this man <laughs> totally <laughs> i thought that was just like it's a funny perfect encapsulation this is like one of those things that ridley scott is just so good at like the little details for me it, the thing that sort of like perfectly encapsulates this kind of guy from this era mm-hmm. is the gold wristwatch that's like a little bit loose. Ooh, good detail. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. though? Like he and he has that, and it's just like where it's kind of like moving around a lot. And I love the scene where he's trying to get into his car and he slips and he falls. Yes. And he starts shouting at, them, "I want this done by three o'clock!" So and like all this stuff. Like that was a, a mistake on set. He slipped and fell and continued. Oh no the, way! Continued the take. Yes. And oh, what a professional. Yeah, totally. And and sort of played it off. Like, oh, you know, the yard workers must have been hired by his wife, so he's going to yell at them, all of that. Uh, But yeah, you're going to hire these people to, like, do all of your yard work for you and then yell at them about, like, being done by a certain time, which is basically how he treats Thelma, too. Um, No, he's he's the perfect character that you sort of love to hate because... For the rest of the movie to work... He has to be awful. But, like, it's funny because he's not, like... He is comical, but I don't want to say he's, like, comically evil to the point where it's unbelievable. He's a little he's cartoonish, like, but but I think it works for me. Yeah, he's bumbling almost, but yeah, he's, he's... a bit of a buffoon. But he's believably buffoonish. Yes. Like, right. we all know this guy. Right. Like, we have a friend... Or, like, maybe it's, like, a family friend where we know this husband. Yes. We know the guy that is this husband. Yes. And we hope to God that we aren't that husband to some, yeah. you know, one of our friends isn't thinking that we're like this guy. And that's what I think is so incredible about his performance is that, it, like, again, it rides that perfectly. It's that razor's edge of, like, this could be a totally unbelievable character yeah. or a totally mustache twirling evil character. But he manages to just sort of balance it enough that... Yeah. We hate him, but we sort of like love to hate him. Right. And we're going to go on board with all of Thelma's decisions that subsequently happen and not be like, oh, like you're cheating on your husband. You're like, that's terrible. We're like, yeah, you go, girl. Yeah, exactly. So fun fact, the actor who plays Daryl, Christopher McDonald, was actually engaged to Gina Davis from Mm. 1984 to 1985. But she left him for Jeff Goldblum. Oh, okay. There you go. And, uh, well, you so, know, so they're like reunited in this movie as like husband and wife, which is really weird. But apparently McDonald in later interviews said that the, making the movie was very cathartic. Oh, well, that's nice. I'd be curious I'm, what Gina Davis had to say about it, but I couldn't find anything about that. That's super interesting. <laughs> well, I do want to kind of talk about uh, mm-hmm. The movie's comedy, like, and we sort of, we've touched on this a little bit already, this sort of, like, how it oscillates between very heavy drama and then sort of borderline slapstick humor at times. Yeah. Like, it, but it is a really funny movie. Oh, and, like, yeah. I always sort of write down memorable lines as I'm watching. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked at how many, like, great quotes I was writing out. Because totally. it's, it's very funny and it's very quotable. Like, there are so many great one-liner laugh out loud funny moments in this which I don't think I was expecting going into this movie I'm not sure I really knew what to expect but I definitely didn't expect it to be this humorous I think that's like again it speaks to that marketing problem with this a little bit I think where 
it's a little too serious to be marketed as a comedy and a little bit mm-hmm. too funny to be marketed as a straight drama or a thriller. And so it kind of like walks this weird line. But yeah, it's like, I think because of this movie's reputation as such an important feminist landmark in cinema, right? there maybe is this sort of cultural expectation that it's going to be serious or that it's not going to be totally. entertaining or whatever. Yeah. And that's so not true about this movie, which I think is also maybe part of why some people get a little like weird about it, too. We can talk about that maybe a little more later, but... Um, but it's just so interesting because it's like, again, there's moments like, you know, him falling, which yeah, I didn't right realize was unscripted, but this sort of like slapsticky humor. Mm-hmm. But then there's also that sort of like just I don't even know how to describe it, but it's some of my favorite kind of comedy of like well-written, well-paced, well-delivered jokes. Yeah. One of my favorite moments that, again, had me laugh out loud is when, you know, they're going to call Daryl. And Louise is telling Thelma, if anything seems suspicious, like you have to hang up immediately. And she's like, OK, I will. I will. And you're like, you're like, she's not going to do this. Like she's th- this is not going to go well. Yeah. And so, you know, the phone rings <laughs> and it cuts to like the shot of Daryl at home pointing to like he starts snapping and All pointing at it as, there. Yeah, as if the cops aren't going to be on top of this. Like right. they're professionals. You're a doofus. And then he like he sort of like does he, he like shakes his hands and then he like picks up the phone and he goes, hello. Daryl, it's me. Hello, hello. It cuts to like her end of the conversation. She immediately hangs up, turns to Louise and goes, he knows. And it's just like, it's perfect. It is a perfectly delivered gag, perfectly edited. Everything about it is so perfect. I laughed so hard. And again, like that's not what I was expecting, especially in the context of the thing that we have not talked about, the sort of driving force of all of this, how they get themselves into the trouble they get themselves into Yes. Which I think is this is a good opportunity to like get into this. Yeah. The rape scene. Right. So, you know, essentially they go on this road trip. They go to this bar. They're having fun. They're drinking. They're dancing with guys. They're doing all this sort of stuff. And this guy, Harlan, comes up and starts hitting on Thelma. And immediately Louise is sort of like has her hackles up where she's sort of Mm -hmm. like telling him to kind of (laughs) off. And Thelma's kind of like, oh. You know, he's kind of cute. You said we're going to have fun this weekend, so let's have fun. Right. She's kind of like allowing it to go forward. And she dances with him and everything's kind of okay. But then she's very, very drunk. And he sort of tells her to like go out into the parking lot. And then he basically tries to rape her and they end up, you know, physically fighting. And by this point, Louise has lost Thelma and finds her in the lot and intervenes. And, and it should be stated that this moment is obviously not played for comedy. Not at all. And not, not an I, it is, I would say it's not graphic. You don't see a lot technically. Th- that's what I mean. I like, I, I, again, it's not graphic like Requiem right. for a Dream is. Maybe the correct word is it's not explicit. Yes, right. But it, it is deeply disturbing. Very disturbing. I think it's played very realistically. Yeah. Um. In especially in terms of the dialogue of like him forcing himself and her saying no repeatedly and him just ignoring her and all this stuff. It was very very hard for me to watch that scene. Totally. Which again I was not expecting because I did I I kind of knew that this movie involved a chase and police and, you know, right. the, the final scene. But I had no idea how we were going to get there. Right. And then during the scene where they're dancing, I was like starting, you know, my stomach starts to go, ooh, I yeah. think I know where this is going. Yeah. And then 
it went there and and I that was not on my radar at all that that's what was going to be sort of the driving force of what happens because as you said Louise sort of intervenes and pulls a gun on Harlan yeah and manages to defuse the situation before things get out of hand except for what ultimately ends up happening right right so yeah I mean she tells him to go away and this happens a few times in this movie actually he basically refuses you know starts mouthing off at them and Louise is like no you're not going to say that and shoots him yeah point blank it seems like in the heart it's it's a little unclear exactly yeah. but it is sort of immediately clear that as our friends Monty Python would say this was not just a flesh wound yeah. uh, he was not going to recover from this situation right. right yeah I found this scene very very disturbing honestly like this scene really almost brought me to tears this time and yeah. it's just the balance of you know her coming out of this horrible relationship that she's sort of stuck in finally having some freedom you get the sense from gina davis's performance of how much joy she's finally feeling of just like mm-hmm. being out with another woman having some freedom you know drinking a little bit too much dancing with someone who actually wants to dance with her kind of basic stuff uh, and yeah, because I can't remember if it's introduced here or later, but at some point, the sort of character backstory comes up that, like, she and Daryl were, like, high school sweethearts or whatever, yeah. but basically got married at a very, very young, young age. Like, she kind of got stuck in this relationship that should have moved on with her life and yeah. gone and found somebody better, but she just never bothered to and was kind of stuck in this crappy situation. Right. And here she is getting to have a little bit of fun with... And just to see that, like, end so violently is really awful. The other thing that struck me was that the scene, I think, is very thoughtfully constructed to get at exactly these issues that end up being in the media this year around consent and Mm -hmm. also around, like, self-defense and all of this as well, because as they point out throughout the movie, it's like the law is probably not going to be on their side, even yeah. though in the context of the movie, I, I think as the viewer, you understand why it all happened, you know, and why they reacted the way they reacted largely. Well, Thelma has that monologue like later, sort of in the final act of the movie of how mm-hmm. how much worse things would be for them if they were to get caught or turn themselves right. in or whatever. Right. And, and she talks about like, OK, we say it's in self-defense. There's no proof. It's he said, she said, and they're always going to believe he even right. if he's not alive. And I think what makes this film so remarkable is like how timeless it is in that regard of like nothing's changed. Like. Yeah. Still Here we are 30, 30 years later, and if if this were to happen again today, I don't think the situation would be any different, right. unfortunately. Right, right. So, you need overwhelming evidence in order to even, you know, get exactly. a conviction in those situations. So, But this is sort of the driving force for the rest of the story, is they murder this guy, and now what the f*** are they going to do? Right. And I think this is also the point in time where conservative critics are like, this movie is anti-men. You know, like, her husband is a buffoon, and then they kill a man just because he tried to rape her, and that's not (laughs) just a proportionate reaction, blah, blah, right? Which is like, of course, horse shit. Curry had a really good response in an interview in 2001. This is a direct quote from her. Bad guys get killed in every goddamn movie that gets made. (laughs) That guy was the bad guy, and he got killed. It was only because a woman did it that there was any controversy at all. 
Yeah. Which, you know, it's like, exactly. yeah, it's like how many road movies are there where the male protagonist is like gunning down bad guys left and right, yeah. you know? Well, in French Connection, the, the cop shoots a guy in the back yeah. and we're cheering for him. Like, right. I, I mean, it, God, the French it, Connection it, is yeah, good, a good <laughs> counterexample of just like, yeah, exactly. Well, this is the thing that I think is kind of interesting yeah. because... For this film to work, mm-hmm. you need to be on their side. Yeah. And there is no doubt in my mind that, like, the whole time I'm on their side and I'm like, yeah, if I were the jury, I'd let them go free. Like, be- but that's who I am. Yeah. I believe Thelma's reasoning of, like, no one's going to believe us. We're fucked. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to run. But I'm very curious. And again, I don't know that there's any way to know. But, like, I am curious as to what audiences in 1991's reaction to this would have been. Whether yeah. they would fully be on their side or even, like, a more liberal audience, mm-hmm. would they sort of go, what was happening was bad, but they shouldn't have killed him. Whereas, like, as you say, like, if it were a man, like, there would be no question. Right. Especially if a man... If literally nothing in that situation was changed except, let's say, Lewis comes upon his female friend being an attempt attempted rape on his female friend, yes. diffuses the situation, and then after he's diffused the situation, the guy talks back and in anger he shoots them. Right. Audience would fucking cheer. Exactly. Exactly. And I don't know that audiences in 1991 would have cheered right. if it, if it for were a female Eastwood, doing that. Or if it were... Yeah, exactly. If it were, were, yeah, exactly. It, it would just be kind of like, yeah, you know, that's the way these movies work, you know? But and yes. I think what's so interesting, too, is even though I, you know, I did not cheer, but I think my immediate reaction was, oh, shit. Yeah. They are f- Yes. And the, again, the acting in this scene is incredible. Oh, it's so good. And, it's so good. And Susan Sarandon plays it. it it's very chilly. It's very, like, mm-hmm. like stone cold. But you also can see that there's more there behind what's happening that, like, is not just from this scene, which, of course, is referenced well, throughout the movie. Yeah, of, like, the whole Texas experience. thing. Yeah, they, they avoid Texas on their escape to Mexico, <laughs> which is hard to do. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite again talking about funny lines is one of one of the great lines is um, we're running for our lives. Can't you make an exception? Right. But yeah, it's never explicitly said. But she had some previous experience in Texas that is clearly motivating her reaction in this scene, yeah. and then also is the reason why they take the long, long way around to avoid <laughs> yeah, Texas exactly. to get to Mexico. At one point, Thelma sort of guesses that she had been raped in. Texas, but Louise, again, one of the interesting things about the script, Louise does not open up. She th- shuts it down mm-hmm. and says, I said I don't want to talk about it. Basically. Yeah, we're not going to talk about we're not this. Talking yeah. about this. So that's like this whole subtext to this scene and then the rest of the film as well is what is Louise's experience exactly? Which again, I, th- I, I don't know, but I feel like that's because it's a female writing this. If a male had written this script... I think they would have gotten into the backstory because they would want to have to like unpack this and like right. explain the well, trauma and all that. Whereas like, well, and and it's and it's unfortunately such a trope to have yeah, well, exactly. sexual assault be the motivation for a revenge story. That like mm-hmm. to your point, I think a lot of male screenwriters use that trope in a really clumsy way that it doesn't feel true to life, feels lazy, feels unsympathetic. I guess to people who actually have experienced that. And I do think that this script 
the fact that Louise can't open up about it and can't talk about it, and it is subtext, is unfortunately truer to life and yeah. um, still feels relevant today. So after they get into this hot water situation where they realize they've essentially committed murder and they're now running, they get on the road and are trying to figure out what to do. And then we're introduced to the detectives and uh, <laughs> Harvey, Harvey Keitel, right? Harvey Keitel and Stephen Tobolowsky. Yes, yes. And they're sort of investigating the scene and talking to the waitress that was serving them at the bar and all that kind of stuff. So two things. Number one, <laughs> what do you think about Harvey Keitel in this movie? And what do you think about this whole B-plot with the detectives? Okay, well, I'll answer the second question first. Sure. Uh, totally unnecessary. Like, I yeah. don't... Like, I, I get the idea that they need something to give Thelma and Louise's narrative, like, a little bit of breathing room right. and to, like, space out the beats of their story. And sort of, like, a sense of danger, maybe, a little bit. Too. Yeah, but, like, it doesn't really do anything for me. Because it's, yeah. like, it's not a real investigation, because that's not really what this movie is about. And right. also, we know who did it, so we don't care. Right. And... Kaitel's the sort of more sympathetic cop that keeps sort of saying, like, you know, you guys are just wanted for questioning. Like, right. And there's also the implication at the end of the film of, like, he knows that they did it, but, like, he's on their side and they were probably justified. And Stephen Tobolowsky, of all people, is sort of being like, stop being such a softy. Like, these yeah. women have killed people in cold blood and armed robbery and all this stuff. So, yeah, I kind of have two minds because it's like, from a filmmaking standpoint and a story standpoint, I understand the need for there to be something to break this narrative up. Yeah. But I don't know that this worked for me or felt overly necessary. Yeah. And just the, the Keitel stuff, just like his character motivations and all this stuff doesn't, it don't, feels kind of like I don't think he's particularly great in this movie, to be honest. No disrespect <laughs> to Mr. Keitel, because he could beat the shit out of me. Um, I, I don't particularly like him as an actor, so that also doesn't help. Yes, but. I, I think there is something about his tone that Tarantino taps into in mm. Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction that kind of works for me. Well, and maybe but, that's it, too. It's like it's so hard to see him in anything after seeing those movies. Right, it's just like that's it, all you see is, is yeah. like he's a parody of himself in a way. Like it just becomes, oh, well, that's the Tarantino guy. Although we have the other Tarantino guy in this as well, which we'll yes, get into, but and then it, also the fact that like the other cop is Stephen Tobolowsky, <laughs> who like always plays like bumbling buffoons. Right. And he's the bad cop. Like, yeah. Uh, that's a very interesting casting I, choice that I do not understand. I think but. it kind of makes sense for me because of what it's sort of trying to say about men at large. Okay, A little sure. bit is like, you know, he's the ultimate authority, but he's someone who doesn't usually play that role. Physically, he's not the, the type you'd expect to be the sort of like... The bad cop. Well, it's funny because I one of my notes was like, is Harvey Keitel really short? Because like, there's so many <laughs> scenes where he's like the shortest person in the scene, and yeah, I'm like, interesting. is he like Tom Cruise short or something? I but like, maybe it was a leading question. But I definitely agree that I feel like this is the weakest part of the movie. Is just whenever mm -hmm. we're like following Harvey Keitel, there are literally like five second scenes in this movie that it's just like you cut back to him and he's looking at a computer screen. <laughs> And, that, yeah. and then it cuts back to Thelma and Louise, and it's like, yeah, why? It's... Like, it does feel a little bit like, like you said, they're just using it as a way to space out the story to indicate the passage of time. Like, just basic stuff like that. 
Or I could also sort of see it being like a studio note of like, we need to insert yeah. more men into this story. So let's <laughs> add a procedural element and make him a sympathetic male character yeah. so that we don't upset our male audience or something. I don't know. Like, it's possible I, because like, I don't particularly like his arc as a character in this either yeah. of being kind of like, he's a genuinely good cop who's trying to get to the bottom of the case <laughs> and he really sympathizes with them and but you don't yeah, really understand just, why it doesn't feel super believable to me i mean no you know no. and he cracks the case pretty quickly yes. but like yeah it feels very contrived yeah. and unnecessary yes. but although it does give us like a few pretty like funny scenes which we could talk a little bit more about i feel like they're actually the more simpsonsy scenes are the scenes it, with the absolutely cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah um yeah but uh no it doesn't really do a lot for me well, but there's two other men that I do want to talk about. Yes, for sure. Um, for sure. Which we've sort of like alluded to. So obviously we've got Louise's boyfriend, Jimmy, who's played by other Tarantino favorite, Michael Madsen, right. who, look, I'm just going to say it. Whenever I see him, the only thing I could think of is that scene from Reservoir Dogs where <laughs> he was dancing around, cutting off a guy's ear too, yes. stuck in the middle with you. Yes. Back in the middle with you. <laughs> totally. I also think of him from the Kill Bill movies as well. Oh yeah, I guess... He's got a big is, role in those movies. Yes. Yeah, see, I don't like one. those movies, but... Yeah. 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 Okay, well, yeah, fair Tarantino, enough. He's a kind of a Tarantino guy now uh, because yeah. of that, I feel like. But it's weird. I, I forget how many movies he's been in. He was in The Natural, a movie that I've talked about, I think, oh, on this podcast. That another I baseball like. movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, <laughs> I think it's a bad movie, even though it's probably an unpopular opinion. He's in Free Willy. Go like a movie I haven't seen since it oh, came out. Oh yes, he it's is in, in Free Willy. Yeah, Donnie Brasco. He's in Die Another Day, okay. and he's in. Oh God, he's in Sin City. All of which all, I've never seen. But you really, you never saw Sin City when it came out. No, not your thing. Well, I, I don't know. I think it was too obvious. Like being like kind of like into film in yeah, that era, yeah, I was like, fair enough. No, this is appeal. I don't know. I yeah, I don't really know how I avoided it, but I somehow managed to. And then I avoided it for so long that then it obviously fell out of like fashion. And I was like, sure, oh, God, no, like don't go back and watch that. Yeah, no, you were duped uh, like I was. <laughs> no, <laughs> somehow I managed. Yeah, you would have thought that like we would have gone to see it together or something. Yeah, but that is surprising. But uh, yeah, but yeah, anyway. so he's in that. So he's a, he's in a, like a pretty wide variety of movies. But I, despite that, I still only associate him with Tarantino movies now. Yeah, no, totally. I don't know. I mean, he's a good actor, yeah, but he also kind of plays like scumbags usually. And so I just assume that he's going to be a scumbag boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't seem to be, he's, really. He's an interesting character in this. Like, he's actually, a, he's probably, I think, the most complicated male character in this movie. Oh, without question. In, in that, like, we don't meet him until they're on the phone together. Jimmy and Louise are on the phone. And Louise asks him for money. And he agrees, you know, to the guy's credit. without, yeah, without like, asking and without questions. very much, yeah, like he, pretty much is just like, yeah, okay. And she's like, we're in trouble, and he's like, okay, I'll be there. And he drives to the motel to meet them and gives them the cash. But then they have this really interesting scene in the motel where he reveals that he's been thinking about proposing to her, but they clearly have this relationship where he's not really good with commitment. Well, and I think that's the whole thing is that like by the way. Louise is talking about him prior to us actually meeting him and yeah. also like the way she talks to Thelma about her relationship with Daryl like you assume that he is scumbag boyfriend yeah and then we meet him and we're like well, it doesn't seem that bad like what's the problem here and then yeah 
But he clearly has a temper because like he does yes. throw a bit of a temper tantrum in the motel. Yep. Did you catch, though, that so later in the movie when they're doing the interrogations, they haul in J.D., who we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a second, and they haul in Daryl and they're interviewing <laughs> them and all this sort of stuff. And you actually see them also corner Jimmy at his, car- his apartment and haul him in, right? Right. When they're interviewing the other guys, it's actually very clear that Jimmy spilled the beans. Oh, I didn't catch that. Even though in the diner, he's like, no, don't, I'll protect you, babe. Like, I'll never tell them. I won't say anything, blah, blah, blah. He absolutely breaks and tells them what they need to hear in order to advance the investigation. Interesting. I didn't catch that. It's That's kind of subtle. No one ever calls it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like based on what they know and the fact that you saw them pick him up, it's clear right. that like he did actually tell them what huh. he knew about the money and all that sort of stuff where they right, were, right. I think. So yeah, he's not as much of a scumbag as the other characters, but he is kind of just like a weak guy who like right. at the end of the day isn't going to be a stand-up guy. He's going to say all the right things, but he's not going to follow through. He is carrying around a ring, but like can't really commit to being married. You know, in that scene, right, in the motel, he pulls out the ring and gives it to mm-hmm. her. He never mm-hmm. actually proposes to her. He just nope. hands her the ring and is like, yeah, take this. Take this. And it's like, yeah, you know, so he's the most complicated, interesting character of the men in the cast, I think, by far. Though, I want to talk about my favorite man. Well, yes. In the cast. Yes, please. Which is. Mr. Bradley Pitt yes. as JD yes. in a star-making performance, For sure. which makes you go, yeah, I, no wonder this guy became a fucking movie star. <laughs> right. He's so good. He is very and good. he's so hot. Yes. Um, and so young. Like, I think that was the other thing. Like, I yeah. knew that this was his sort of, like, breakout role. And, like, he had done, like, smaller stuff in TV yeah. and, like, little bit parts here and there. And, and things like that. But I, so I think I knew that this was, like, the movie that was going to, like, set him forth on the path. Yeah. And it is crazy to think that this movie is, like, four years before Seven and how much older he seems in Seven. Totally. Like, so much more, like, world-weary and tired and mm-hmm. beaten down. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, he looks like he's, like, fresh-faced and out of school. Yep. I think the thing that was also astonishing is, like, how ripped he is and how ripped <laughs> He continues to be in Fight Club yes. like 10 or 15 years later. And you're like, OK, so you're just like, that's your body, you son of a bitch. He probably puts a little work into it. Too. Well, I'm sure he puts a little bit of work into it. Yeah. But um, like, again, he's so charming yeah. and you could see why Thelma like immediately kind of is smitten and taken right. by him. Right. To the point where she doesn't necessarily realize that he's maybe taking her for a ride in more ways than one. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, what you did there. Yes. Yeah, see? Yeah, no, for sure. And apparently some of the lines Brad Pitt actually brought to the table around, like, how JD talks. He does a lot of, like, dancing and thrusting and movement in this. That's all Brad Pitt adding that to the table as well. So, like, he's definitely bringing a lot to this role. But he also wasn't the first choice. and By far. The list of people who auditioned or were also considered for this role is wild. Yeah. Because it literally reads of, like, a who's who of 2000s era movie stars. So you got... George Clooney, Mr. Ocean's Eleven himself, Mm -hmm. Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, 
John Mellencamp, which is the weirdest <laughs> one to me. And then this, I just think this is really funny because I always get these two actors mixed up. And I'm not, I know I'm not the only one. But Dylan McDermott and Dermot Mulroney were both <laughs> concerned for the role. And in the end, yeah, I went to Mr. Pitt. So. Well, I, I found this other like weird tidbit about this as well. So Billy Baldwin... I believe was actually offered the role as well. Yes, he was like originally actually like cast and then dropped out or yeah. was replaced. So, or... so Billy Baldwin and Brad Pitt both auditioned for this and for Backdraft. And, oh, right. And Billy Baldwin got both roles and chose Backdraft over this. And so that, yeah. that's sort of like how the audition process opened back up again and Pitt, right. was, Pitt was able to kind of get his way in there. But... The other story about him auditioning is that basically like Gina Davis read with all of these actors and, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just kind of run of the mill, whatever. But then she gets to Brad Pitt and is so flustered by how hot he is (laughs) that she totally screws up her lines. Understandably. and, And kind of screws up the audition for him, she thinks. But then afterward, Ridley Scott's talking to, I don't know who else, Alan Ladd or someone. And they're kind of like, oh, I don't know. Like, I like that guy. I like that guy. And she's like... Obviously, it's the blonde. (laughs) (laughs) And so she kind of tried to tip the scales for Mr. Pitt, understandably. Because, yeah, it's like he's fantastic in this. Both obviously like he is very hot in this role, but also just all of the the movement and everything is kind of unique. It's a very physical performance, which is surprising, I guess, for the movie. Well, he kind of reminds me of like Channing Tatum. Yeah, like, sure, totally. How, because, and, like, the Magic Mike thing of, like, the the way that Brad Pitt moves in this and, like, he's got this sort of nimbleness. And obviously, like, in the sex scenes, he seems quite athletic. Yep. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like the Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs, not to bring it back to that, but it's like, he's not in this movie for that long. Right. But he certainly leaves quite a lasting impression. Totally. For the limited screen time that he does have. Totally. Um, Well, like, I think part of the thing with the sex scene is that it's a very different kind of sex scene than, again, you'd see on films typically around this mm -hmm. time, I feel like. Totally. If you think about, like, all those stupid sex thrillers, I really don't like that genre. But they tend to be very stylized and very weirdly impersonal and kind Mm -hmm. of paint-by-numbers. Well, and I say athletic in this movie, but they are much more athletic or almost like gymnastic in nature. Yes, like weird poses. I think of Basic Instinct. Yeah, like the the shit that Sharon Stone is doing in Basic Instinct, like no human has ever had sex like that before. That only happens in those movies. Whereas this, I don't want to say there's like a realism to it, but like they're kind of it. Like it feels like it's just like passionate. I think the thing that is sexy about it is realistic, which is that Mm -hmm. these people seem to actually have a connection and yeah. there's a lot of verbal foreplay and not like stupid one-liners of like double entendres and stuff. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. In not James bed. Bond wordplay. Right. Yeah. They're, they're just in bed flirting with each other for a long time and kind of playing. And it's like, that's very sexy. <laughs> but so here's my question, though. Yeah. Do you think he's actually attracted to her? Because the thing that ends up happening is she, they sleep together the next morning. She leaves to meet up with Louise. And this is where she sort of says like, oh, I had such a great time. And I'm like, oh my God, I had such a great. And then Louise is like, wait, where's the money? And Thelma goes, oh, it's on the nightstand. Don't worry about it. And she's like, you left him alone with the money. And she's like, yeah, but it's fine. It's no big deal. And then sure enough, they run back to to the room to discover that he's absconded with 
the money because the thing that also is established earlier is that like he's a criminal like he's been yeah. holding up he tells he her straight up tells he her robs, like he robs places not only that he tells her how to rob stuff which yep. comes in to play later on and so he does exactly what you expect him to do he finds over six thousand dollars and he takes it yeah. so my question is do you think that he was attracted to her or was this all a con like or a little bit of both like he it, like he saw the opportunity and took it I think it's a little bit of both because I think in that scene they're both playing a role she's being a different person than she is at home right yeah totally and yeah, so yeah, they're yeah. both kind of like to a certain extent, I think they both know what they're getting into and that this is kind of like right. a situation outside of the real world. But then she obviously doesn't know that he's going to steal their money. But outside of that scene, when he's like talking to the cops and stuff, he seems like a guy who likes to have a good time. <laughs> totally. You know, and so like, I think this is part of that good time for him. I don't think he's just doing it to trick her necessarily. When he gets eventually hauled in and he sees her husband he kind of straight up tells him <laughs> i cuckolded you like i yep. your wife and there's nothing you could do about yes. it and then christopher mcdonald naturally is just like this is his mind let me out, let me out. like yes. yeah it's uh, also added by brad pitt <laughs> of course it was yes. yeah well yeah, and especially the the sort of like rumba thrusting motion he does uh <laughs> is that's all brad pitt <laughs> Oh, he's um, so good in this movie. Yes. The other thing I love about this scene is that Ridley Scott apparently also knew that, like, there was something special about Brad Pitt's performance in this and that it was going to right. kind of be a big deal. And he personally spritzed Brad Pitt's abs for the shots <laughs> <laughs> where of, of, like, the close-ups of his, like, abs as he's, like, about totally. to, you know, have sex with uh, Thelma. So. Well, you know, like, when you think about it, guys made a living making music videos and commercials where I'm yeah. sure he made a perfume ad where he, like, had to have close-ups on some dude's ripped body sure. covered in fake sweat. So he's like, let's do it again. Hey, I'm going to give him the uh, Calvin Klein treat look. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The other thing about this movie, and I kind of alluded to this before, but I think one of the reasons why it freaked out conservative critics, but also some feminist critics, is that mm. it's fun and sexy. <laughs> mm. and, totally. and I think that that is weirdly kind of transgressive for people. When you talk about serious issues, people feel like it gets contaminated when you have fun or you make a joke or you have right. you have something like sexual or those kinds of things. And I think that that just kind of like freaks people out and makes them feel uncomfortable somehow. But that's not everyone. I think that's actually mostly on the fringes of popular opinion. And I think for most people, that really helps you get through some really hard things. Mm -hmm. Having these, these like lighter moments, more fun moments, tantalizing moments to kind of fall back on. Ridley Scott had kind of a theory about this. He was sort of encouraging Curry to keep the script with some comedy and some lightness throughout and right. he 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 said to her comedies are so powerful because they don't shut off half the audience you want the males to listen you want them to actually eat crow because every male in that movie is damaged goods and so like Interesting. his theory was sort of like if you can combine some comedy and some lightness and all of that it's more likely that the men in the audience might actually like listen to the message and I think this, you know, coming back to Barbenheimer, I think this really does resonate with me when thinking about, like, how Barbie works, too. Right? Right. And, like, one of the strengths of that movie is obviously the comedy and the moments where 
they're able, you know, as a, a man watching the movie, they're able to like have these moments that are funny, but also pointed where you're like, you might recognize yourself and the things that you do. Like <laughs> yeah. the scene where Ken or maybe multiple Kens are explaining the Godfather to yeah, to, totally. to the Barbies that they're watching with. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> that is me sometimes. <laughs> oh, boy. But, you know, it's like because it's funny, you're able to be like, all right, I'll eat the crow, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after that scene, you kind of like, you know, we're kind of propelling towards the end because like their situation has just gone from very bad, bad to, worse. to even yeah. worse. There's a this incredible moment after they realize the money's gone and... Thelma starts being like, it's okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to figure it out. It's okay. It's okay. Right. And and Louise just sort of, she's not, she's not even really crying, but she's just sort of like, she, it's almost like utter defeat. Yeah. She's like, it's not going to be okay. Yeah. What are you talking about? It's not going to be okay. What are we going to do? We have no money. Yeah. We like, how are we going to pay for gas? Mm-hmm. How are we going to pay for food? She essentially says like, we're f-ed. Right. And you got f-ed, And now you f***ed us all. And like, what do we do now? Yeah. The thing I loved about that scene is that, again, if it were two male protagonists, there would have been a shouting match and a, like, a back and forth, and this is your fault, and this is your not, what if you, you, like, and again, and I think if a, if, if a male had written it, there would have been more tears involved and more apologizing. The way the script is reserved in this moment, and also the way that Sarandon plays that moment, mm-hmm. where I think a lesser actor would have gone more broad yes. or more over the top, right. would go for the, like, I want the close-up of the snot running down my face so I can get my Academy Award nomination. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't do that. And we've all been there, sort of like where you've hit that moment where it's like, Everything comes crashing down, and you can't cry, you can't laugh, you're just kind of dead. Yeah. You're just dead inside. Yep. And she plays that scene so well. Totally. And Gina Davis also yes. plays that scene so well of, like, she knows she's basically ruined everything. But she's now, she's like, well, I'm going to be light and frothy, and hopefully, like, yeah. I don't want to get yelled at. And, and you can tell, like, she probably has done this with her husband of, like, oh, no, I'm going to be in trouble, mm-hmm. so I'm going to play myself off as this sort of, like, ditzy airhead in an attempt to sort of, like, diffuse the situation. Right. And... But there is, like, and, this turning point, too, with Thelma sort of, like, right after this moment where she's like, oh, crap. Like, Louise is not going to take care of me anymore. Like, mm-hmm. she's not in a position to figure this all out and lead us down the road anymore. And, like, I'm going to have to do something. Well, to that end, it gets to a scene where she gets the idea that she's going to hold up, like, a, a liquor store or, like, a convenience store or a gas station and she's like, yeah, here's what I'm going to say. And then it's a smash cut to the cops <laughs> watching the surveillance footage. Yes. It's a beautiful filmic moment. It's delivered so well. It's played for laughs. But that's sort of the first instance where we see her taking control, as it were. I'm, I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers. Taking control, but, like, she's she's taking control by doing what JD told her he does. Right. And kind of bungling it because she's clearly visible on camera yes like and that's how they're gonna catch them now because she didn't really do a very good job of this but this scene with the trooper is where she actually sort of her instincts take over and she effectively saves the day for for lack of a better term even though she's really getting themselves now into like deeper 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 shit but they don't really have another 
path. Other than turning themselves in, there is no path to get them out of trouble, basically. Yeah, they're point. just sort of prolonging the inevitable yeah. at this point. Yeah. It gets to a scene where I was, like, I, I actually wrote, I did not see this coming, yeah. where they get pulled over by the state trooper. Yeah. And he brings Louise into his patrol car and is, like, basically about to, like, call her in. And all of a sudden you hear a gun cock and put against his head. And now Thelma has taken control of the situation for the first time. Yeah, totally. And then she's, like, gets the trooper in the trunk and he's kind of, like, crying and, uh... and there's a lovely Simpson-y moment where she fires the gun and Louise is like, oh, my God, what are you doing? And she goes, air holes. Yeah. There's also the funny moment where Thelma tells Louise, shoot the radio. And she shoots the car radio. <laughs> right. And she has to correct her and be like, no, no, radio. like the police radio. <laughs> Which, again, is just sort of like it shows how everything is sort of turned on its head. Right. Because the person who was previously fully in control is now just yes. completely. Totally. Right. Susan Sarandon's like expression throughout all of this is like totally shocked she can't believe that Thelma is doing this another fun fact about the state trooper situation so a few scenes later we come back to the trooper who's still in the truck and it's just like this landscape and the car on the road and that's all you see and then you see the cyclist come up and it's like you know a guy like full spandex and he is a Rastafarian who is smoking a big doobie (laughs) <laughs> and uh, pulls up and he sort of like stops his bike and he can tell that the trooper's in the trunk and the trooper sort of sticks his finger out of one of the air holes and yeah. is like basically like, help me. And the guy just blows some smoke into the holes, right? Um, yeah. So apparently the story behind this is that one day Ridley Scott was getting a drive to set and he sees the cyclist on the road and it's this guy. <laughs> who is doing mm. exactly what you see in the movie. He's smoking and biking down the road. And Ridley Scott's like, that guy's got to be in this movie. And basically like had the car stop and got him in the movie. So real guy who's like actually, huh. actually does this sort of stuff. I guess probably in Utah is where this was shot, I think. At this point in the movie, there were a lot of the scenes that don't really like advance the plot per se, but are kind of more in the road movie genre of them kind of like running into people ending up in situations and like it's all about landscape it's about characters it's about funny or interesting moments right and like the other one that that's sort of cutting through all of this is this trucker this asshole trucker Mm, who, mm -hmm. who they keep running into he's driving a tanker and he keeps waving them to pass and then as they're passing he'll roll down the window and you know wag his tongue at them and all this sort of shit and eventually on the third pass of course rule of threes they tell him to pull over and he gets out of the truck thinking that he's gonna like hook up with them somehow he has like oh god what does he do in the in when he's getting out of the truck like he has like a 12 pack of condoms and yeah something like that yeah yeah yeah. he's he's a real creep and so he gets out and they tell him basically like yeah we think you have really bad manners <laughs> yeah where did you get off behaving like that with women you didn't even know <laughs> uh and then uh they start shooting at his truck and shooting at the tires and all sort of stuff but then they shoot the wrong thing and the whole thing explodes <laughs> Which 
which is in a very Tony Scott Ridley's uh, Ridley's brother. <laughs> like it is the most Tony Scott explosion you've ever seen. Yes. Like it's just like gargantuan. Yes. I I wrote it down that it does feel a little out of place in this movie. It like does, it kind of feels bit. like a studio note of like, okay, now we got like, can you please just put like one giant yeah. ass explosion in this thing? I think that was um, in the original script to, to some degree. Oh, really? But because in that Vanity Fair article, they talk about someone at the production company reading the script, a woman reading it and nodding along about like the trucker, you know, doing the lewd gestures and then right. them pulling him over and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, it does feel a little bit out of place. It's probably the most heightened moment in the movie, mm-hmm. right? Totally. This is pretty a pretty grounded movie, despite like the comedy and everything. This is sort of like okay, <laughs> you know, this is starting to yeah. feel more like an actiony road uh, movie. Yeah, a '90s action blockbuster, right, totally. Right, right. But yeah, and then I think we're you know with all of these things, like eventually they get cornered, and we're we're basically at the end of the movie, right? Yeah. And that's the thing I, I do really want to talk about because, so obviously it's the thing that's been spoiled by the American Film Institute documentary that I watched. It's the thing that they parody in The Simpsons. Yeah. So it's this iconic moment that I knew was coming and therefore I think the impact of it was lessened. Mm-hmm. But I hate to say it didn't really work for me. And I think part of the reason why is that almost immediately the car goes off the cliff, freeze frame, fades to white, and then within seconds it cuts to a montage of all these like funny moments they had together while they're like end credits roll and this like saccharine crappy Glenn Fry (laughs) song starts playing. And I'm like, Fuck! Like I didn't have a chance to actually like take in what I just saw, and I, I, you know, I'm not saying that it needs to just like end on silence and and then like we walk out of the theater, but it just it gave me no moment to sort of like absorb this pretty impactful moment that I think again, had you not had it spoiled for you, would have been pretty shocking and unexpected yeah. at the end of this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the only thing they could do in a sense, but. What was your take on it? It is, uh, to your point about it being spoiled and also parodied, I think because you've seen that image so many times, you kind of have an expectation for how the ending is going to work, right? Like, not only do you mm-hmm. know, yeah, okay, they drive off the cliff, right? But you've seen the image, and even the Simpsons parody, the timing of it is different, right? Yeah. It's like when the cops in The Simpsons, right, Wiggum and Homer, they go <laughs> off the cliff in Wiggum's cop car, right? It fades to white, but the pause is a lot longer in The yeah, Simpsons. a lot longer. Than it is in this movie. It's and like, in The Simpsons, you get this comedic payoff of the car ends up landing on a giant <laughs> garbage, garbage, garbage pile. Solid waste, I could kiss you. Ha! And to think, those idiot environmentalists were protesting this landfill. Solid waste. I could kiss you. Yeah. Oh, Oh, God. And to that end, so there was a part of me that's like, okay, well, I know they're going to jump off the cliff. Yeah. But I was like, is there like some last minute twist like there is in the Simpson episode? Or is that going to. So I was getting to this moment. I'm like, okay, I'm going to finally see this like iconic moment. 
And then it's just like, no, no, it's going to quickly fade to a terrible montage that feels right out of like fried green tomatoes or some sort of like mom movie yeah. from the era. I mean, like, and I'm just like, I think, yeah, I think the thing is like, it's kind of like the Mona Lisa, right? Where it's like, you have a certain expectation of how the Mona Lisa is going to look when you go see it in person. Totally. But like most of what you've been seeing for most of your life is enlarged and mm. more detailed than the real deal. And you get there and it's very, very small, right? And people yeah. just have a, a different expectation than what the reality is. And I feel like because it's seen, this moment is seen everywhere, that's kind of what's going on is it's like this Mona Lisa moment where you actually see it and you're like, oh, that's kind of tonally different than what I thought it was going to be. Because it looks like, like, it's built up through all these parodies and all this sort of stuff to be this, like, big, serious moment where the implication is, like, they die, right? Hmm. And it's, it's that's triumph what, despite... Yeah. Yeah. But it's like it's like dying on your own terms, but it's still dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So there's sort yeah. of a level of seriousness that you expect, and that's totally not what the movie does at all because of no. this montage that cuts in, like, immediately. I, honestly, I think... It is partly just a timing thing for me is like if they waited just like a second longer or something like that, I think it would be less jarring for me because they really do not let you sit with it. Well, yeah, they don't let you sit with it, which I don't know if that's just because like executives are like, we can't linger on this. Like, please, for the love of God. Like, but even if they didn't change the timing, but just removed this montage at the end, which feels so unnecessary. And just like the credits started to roll. Like, have you seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. And there's been a lot of comparisons between these two movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's a similar ending of like, they decide that they're gonna like meet their fate and they run out and then it's a freeze frame and then you hear the sounds of them essentially being shot down. down. And I guess that's in my mind, that's kind of what I was expecting. Exactly, This sort of like, Artful. You hear the crash, or it just kind of fades to white, and then even, you have yeah, a moment like, to like think about it. Yeah, and you don't get that, and nope. it's just like okay. So let me let me let it me. It doesn't work for let me. Let me man. pause. So in doing a lot of research for this, I came across a lot about like what was the intent of this ending. So let me read mm. you a quote from Callie Curry, the screenwriter, about sort of what she was trying to do when she wrote this ending. Okay. So she says to me. The ending was symbolic, not literal. We did everything possible to make Mm. sure you didn't see a literal death. That you didn't see the car land. You didn't see a big puff of smoke come up out of the canyon. You were left with the image of them flying. They flew away out of this world and into the mass unconscious. Women who are completely free from all the shackles that restrain them have no place in this world. The world is not big enough to support them. I loved that ending and I loved that imagery. After all they went through, I didn't want anybody to be able to touch them. Which I'm all for, but then just have the credits roll over the white. Like have the white out and then have the credits (laughs) come. And like that gives you the ambiguity and like the ending of them. Like I 100% agree. I don't want the Butch Cassidy ending in terms of like, clarifying that no they fell to a certain death right. like, I don't want that right. but what I don't need or what I certainly don't want and again maybe this is just maybe it's a 2023 versus a 1991 yeah. thing I don't know but what I don't need is a cheesy ass montage <laughs> of them smiling and all of the happy moments on this not happy because ro- it, it like I guess like yes there are a couple like 
happier moments along the way as they're descending into deeper and deeper shit. Right. But like, it feels so at odds with what this movie is all really about. I don't know, it's man. Interesting. It just and I think it. I think that the intent of it is to literally like short circuit your brain's ability to process that they probably died to like literally not give you time to have that melancholy moment. Cause like even, you know, like Butch Cassidy, right? It's mm-hmm. melancholy. You don't see them gunned down like Bonnie and Clyde, right? As another yep. counter example, right? Yeah. 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 Um, you, you get the freeze frame, but you know, they died and it is melancholy. I think it fades to sepia maybe, or something like that too. But Anyway, it doesn't matter. This is preventing you from having that moment. And I think it is intentional. Yeah. I'm not saying it works. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate and or like trying no, to get no, to no, the no. bottom I, of like, I, what are they trying to do with it? Because I agree. Yeah. Like <laughs> in my personal reaction, it's weird. And I don't really love the the, the montage, but I'm trying to get at yeah. like, what are they trying to do with it? And the reality is, too, it could also be like a studio thing studio of now. like, like, again, yeah. look at Blade Runner, like Blade oh, Runner God. famously had a happy ending. Tactic. And actually, we didn't really talk about this, but this one of the things I did read is that, like, I guess it was I think it was Susan Sarandon when she signed on or whatever. She basically held Ridley accountable and said, like, I will do this under one circumstance, which is you cannot change the ending. Yeah. No matter what, you cannot change the ending. Yeah. And he said, okay. And I guess, like, there was a lot of studio pushback against this ending. And Ridley stood his ground. And I was reading, I can't remember if it was an article or someone else's review or whatever. But they were saying, like, when you consider the fact that he met such pushback with Blade Runner. Yeah. And the fact that he he allegedly was such a taskmaster and unrelenting in his decisions and unwavering and we're going to do it my way and my way is the highway and that he was apparently very very open to any changes that gina davis or susan sarandon had with regards to the character with regards to the script Mm -hmm. with regards to like making it feel more authentic so here's someone who like has this reputation for being very stringent and he's relaxing there but at the same time he's also pushing very very hard to like maintain this iconic ending that is not what a typical studio movie would end with you know you got to give them a little bit of credit there so i I, again i don't know if this montage is like a capitulation to say like okay fine like i'm not changing the ending but i'll I'll tack on a quasi happy ending so that the studio executives are happy again i don't know maybe it was his idea maybe it wasn't i i i didn't do enough research to figure that out but i mean i think like at the end of the day this movie is about like a certain kind of liberation like even though of course they're in deep shit throughout all of this it's like what they discover along the way is like Thelma learns to be more self-sufficient and to like mm-hmm. solve her own problems and solve other people's problems and be in charge and Louise sort of learns to loosen up a bit and open up a bit and be vulnerable totally and both of those are a kind of freedom and I think like that's sort of what this movie ultimately is about and what the sort of feminist message I think is about. And I think that's what they're ultimately trying to get at with the ending is like the flying certainly is about kind of like they just keep going, right? They're, mm-hmm. They keep driving and, and you don't see them even dip down. You just see them fly. No. Up. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's like the end of Greece. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I did. There was a part of me that was like, "Yeah, it's she wanted to give them the grease ending. Yeah, You're flying yeah, exactly. off into the sunset. Exactly. But Maybe they met Danny and Sandy. Okay. Yeah. But I think that's the thing is like that 
montage, as corny as it is, is, I think, ultimately about the freedom that they found in this relationship with one another and right. that sort of personal growth through the process and that that wouldn't sort of be possible without the relationship between the two of them. Yeah, I, I just don't think we need to, like, hit us over the head with it I, I or see you, it. I like, I, like, but anyway, well, to that end, Nate, like, what I did differently this time, because yes. I usually end up watching the Simpson episode after I watch the film. Right. I wanted to watch, because I had never seen this film before. Right. And only knew it from the Simpson episode. I kind of wanted to watch the episode first. So then as I'm watching the movie, sort of be like, oh, that's like this moment. That's like this moment. And sort of like do it that way, which I don't normally do. But for whatever reason, I chose to do it Mm -hmm. this time. But my understanding is you did what I normally do, which is watch the movie, then watch the episode. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, this is the first time this has happened to me. But I kind of actually struggled watching this episode a little bit, Mm. which was interesting because... With other movies we've watched, they're doing kind of like a light parody or what they're parodying is kind of just like fun and frothy or it's easy to make fun of. It's not a movie that's tackling a lot of like important issues and or it's done like kind of lovingly like it's it's a loving homage like it's an homage the the Citizen Kane stuff. Exactly. And so this was this interesting in between that I was really kind of struggling with because I really enjoyed this movie, and I also was doing a lot of research about sort of, like, what was the intent, what was the situation in the world, all of these, like, important issues around consent and rape, and there was a lot around this movie, and the Simpsons episode, of course, understandably in many ways, doesn't really address any of that, right? No. And <laughs> Not at all. Right. And, and it's, like, one of those w- sort of rare instances, maybe, where I think the Simpsons reference to this movie or use of this movie is maybe even actually like less transgressive than the real deal right Mm. it's whereas usually the simpsons is like you know pushing your buttons and kind of like heightening things and but this is actually a situation where i actually think the movie is a little bit more pushing the boundaries than the simpsons episode is yeah, that totally tracks. And again, I wonder if part of this is they're doing a more contemporary reference. So it's less about being parodies of these things that have become iconic. And it's more just like, let's borrow these plot elements and then like transpose them into the world of The Simpsons. That's the thing. Like, apart from, I guess, the ending with the car, it's not, I wouldn't necessarily classify it as a parody in the way that I think of a parody. Like, it's more just, like, they're borrowing plot elements and putting Marge, like, subbing out Thelma and Louise and putting Marge and Ruth in. They're not really commenting on the film or commenting on what the film is commenting on necessarily. I mean, I guess it's kind of men are pigs, Homer's an idiot. Like, But that's not also, like, the movie's not really about the husbands being doofuses. So the other thing, too, is that, like, Marge and Ruth have no relationship outside of this episode. Yes, like yeah, totally. They they bond in this episode, but it's not like they become long-term friends for the rest of the series. Again, it's kind of just like, it's a means for an end. We need to give Marge a friend. Wouldn't it be interesting if it's the neighbor and yeah. she's a single... Like, so... Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that rubbed me the wrong way initially was just that, like, they're taking this vehicle of Thelma and Louise as the sort of framework for this story, but a lot of the message in the show is kind of like actually they don't have it as bad as they think they do because like you know marge ends up back with homer of course and homer sort of apologizes don't drive into that gorge gorge and when ruth is sort of like talking about her situation marge is kind of like well you know you can just tell the police about that 
And <laughs> and she's like, that's why you're my friend, Marge, or something like that. You know, like, mm-hmm. there's just all this yeah. sort of diffusing of all of the issues that this movie's bringing up. But yeah, I think the thing that helped me ultimately kind of reckon with it a little bit was it's referencing Thelma and Louise, not because The Simpsons has something to say about the movie, but because the movie has something to say about The Simpsons. Mm. In the sense that they're really using this as a way to explore Homer and Marge's relationship and Marge's situation at home and like what she's like as an individual and like giving her an opportunity to explore herself. But like they actually don't really have anything to say about Thelma and Louise. They're not trying to comment on what the movie's doing successfully or not successfully, what the message of the movie is. Like, that's not at all what they're doing when they're referencing this movie and using it in this episode. I think that was the thing that finally, when I sort of put it that way to myself, I was like, okay, I get it. I I need to, like, just chill out and not take it as a parody. They're just using it as a way, an engine for a plot, basically. And as we sort of discussed, this theme, like Marge and Homer's relationship, becomes a recurring theme throughout the series. Right. And I think they do a better job of exploring it in other episodes. Like this yeah, one, I agree. like the idea here is it resolves so quickly and kind of comedically. And like Homer's just like, I realize I'm a buffoon. And like I said, he just, don't drive off of that gorge. Like there's other episodes that actually sort of unpack this a lot. Yeah more deeply sure. and like much more effectively and again like that's the nature of the show right like we're only five seasons into it and they're still figuring mm-hmm. everything out so even some of the episodes in like the very first couple seasons i think do a better job in some ways of like mm-hmm. like Fair the scene enough, where yeah. marge almost has the affair with uh with uh mr with jacques. With jacques i think that one's actually pretty good at like yeah. unpacking some of these same sort of tensions and stuff i think this episode's very funny but i think that Yeah, it's not necessarily the strongest version of that storyline, I guess. Should we talk a little bit about some of the Simpsons-y moments in this? The parts that seem like Simpsons jokes but aren't in Thelma and Louise. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me because, like, the movie's very funny. Yeah. But it's a very different type of comedy totally. than The Simpsons. So it was like, I wrote down a lot of like memorable lines. And like in that way, I want to say it's Simpson-esque in that like it's got a lot of memorable, quotable lines. Sure. But nothing kind of jumped out at me as being like overly Simpson-y. Right. But you, until I looked at what you had written down and then I was like, okay, yeah, no, that, that moment. <laughs> so like, why don't you explain the moment? Yeah. So there were two that really stood out to me and both of them were with the cops, which makes sense because The Simpsons love to poke fun at the cops. But there's one moment where I think it's Harvey Keitel or one of the detectives is interviewing Daryl, the husband, the buffoon Thelma is married to. And he's sort of like seriously sort of talking to them about like what's going on. And then when he's done, the detective just says, (laughs) excuse me, you're standing in your pizza. Oh, shit. (laughs) And he looks down and he's just literally like his foot is in a pizza that was yeah. just sitting on the floor in his messy ass home. But I just thought that line was felt very like right out of the Simpsons. And Daryl is kind of a Simpsons esque. Like yes. the buffoonery of him is kind of, you know, Simpson-y. Totally. Especially like kind of the way that his home deteriorates so quickly with Thelma gone <laughs> yeah. feels very Homer-esque, I would say. Yeah, totally. Um, Totally. The other scene that had a bit of like Simpsons humor was you're like watching the cops like try to figure out this crime and all that kind of stuff. And essentially they like take over Daryl's home as they're waiting to get a call from Thelma and Louise. 
But at one point they're like staying overnight and there's this scene where all of the cops are just sitting in the living room and they're watching some kind of sentimental movie on the television and they're all just like, you know, totally like homed in on the TV and and so serious and watching what's going on. And uh, Daryl isn't paying attention and just like tries to change the channel to the game and all the cops kind of look up like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, oh, uh, sorry. And he puts it back onto the movie. I thought that that was just like the way that they're showing this like different side to the cops and that, you know, they're actually like kind of like soft human beings too that have emotions mm-hmm. and aren't just like the detectives that you typically see in movies and TV had some similarities to like the way that like Wiggum is depicted, for example. Totally. Well, should we talk a little bit about the performance of the movie? Because I mean, obviously it's become such an iconic film. There's a reason that all of these plot points have been spoiled over the years. You don't, you don't sort of, that doesn't happen if this movie doesn't become even a cult favorite, if it, if it were. But like, how did this movie do? Yeah. So, I mean, it did very well with the caveat that I think it did well for the kind of movie that it is at the time, mm. right? It's number 25 for 1991's box office. So, good. It definitely made money, especially considering that it didn't have a huge budget. But, you know, it's definitely, like, nowhere near the top five for that year. Like you said, like, Terminator 2 Judgment Day is number one. Yeah. Uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, that's up there. Home Alone, Silence of the Lambs, and City Slickers, that's the top five. And (laughs) this is nowhere near that. And uh, and it's definitely not like any of those movies. Like, it's, again, when you think of, you've got, like, Hard sci-fi, sort of like an action-adventure movie. Yeah, a family Christmas movie. A um, crime thriller (laughs) type movie. Yeah, people say it's a horror. I don't think it's a horror movie, but a thriller. Yeah, like we'll call it a crime thriller. And then like a straight studio comedy. And then you've got this weird sort of like blend. Genre blending sort of movie that that has like, you know, two women as the stars you know, it's also worth mentioning, like, just in the context of Hollywood, that, like, Susan Sarandon is 45, I think, when this movie comes out. Right, and, yeah. And uh, Gina Davis is 35. So it's, like, it's not very conventional, especially at this moment in time, to have two women of that age as the star vehicle for this kind of movie. And they're, they're names, but I don't... These are not necessarily, like, A-list celebrities that everyone's going to go see the movie because, right. oh, this is the new Gina Davis, new Susan right. Sarandon movie. So, so. so all that to say, I think, at the time, it really outperformed expectations, more importantly right. than anything else. And it was not only critically liked by a lot of people, but also was, like, this huge brush fire of controversy between... feminists and conservatives kind of like battling it out in the pages about all sorts of things is it a good movie is it good for the culture right all all that bullshit that that comes with the territory all that stuff and it, it reminds me so much of barbie in that somehow this movie ends up being both anti-men and not feminist enough right where it's like (laughs) you know a lot of people love this movie a lot of critics love this movie but then there are these fringes that are kind of like it's bad not only is it a bad movie but it's bad for us it's bad for society and it's like okay all right just chill out calm down it's a movie right i have to share callie curry's response to conservative critics of the movie in the new york times around the time that this came out and she just simply said Look, the movie is not hostile towards men. It's just hostile towards idiots. <laughs> Which I thought was, yeah, perfect. That's perfect. 
one sort of good news story out of this is that like this is number 25 in 1991 barbie is on track to be probably number one or close to it this year i mean as of today i believe it said that like it outgrossed what was previously number one this year, the <laughs> Super Mario Brothers movie, which, oh, good go. Lord, help us. Thank God. Uh, I mean, I love me some Mario, but, oh boy, that movie. Yeah. And we're getting closer to the end of the year, and, like, yeah. the summer blockbuster season is wrapping exactly. up. And not only that, with the strikes going on and a lot of films now being delayed, yeah. like, yep. I don't think there's a world where this doesn't, doesn't hit come one. in number one, at least domestically yes. like i guess there's a chance that something could right, blow up internationally sure. because i don't know that barbie's ip necessarily has the same power right, right. overseas but i i don't think there's yeah we're splitting hairs in that like you know look if it's battling for number 1 that's a very different story than than you know number 25 and and i think it does hopefully it shows some growth in just like the understanding that yes like Movies for women and also about being a woman can do very well at the box office, right? Oh, no, and but the reason Barbie did well, Nate, is because it's about a toy. Right, well, it's Mattel would, about women. clearly thinks that that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah. I hope other people yeah. take the real lesson, which is, like, you know, the audience doesn't always have to be young boys and their families or whatever, you know? No, no, exactly. And, it's the first movie my wife has gone to see in the movie theater probably since COVID. Sure. Like, she doesn't love movies like we do. Like, I, I will drag her to movies or be like, I think you'll maybe enjoy yeah. this. But this was the first one where she said to me, she's like, can we go see Barbie? Yeah. Like, I want to go see this. Yeah. Like, it looks really good. And I was like, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> I've dragged you off to enough of the stuff that I'm interested in over the years. If you're actively want to go to the theaters to yes. see something, then of course I'll and, go. And she yes. loved it. Brought her to tears and all this stuff. So, yes. um, And to have a, have a, a number one movie that basically gives you a lecture about feminism 101 and uh and also it's like i think it's the only movie i've ever seen that uses the word patriarchy in it <laughs> it's not well it's i don't know if you watched amy poehler's movie that was on netflix i can't even remember what it's called it uses that oh, word okay. in a very unrealistic oh, way no. but that was the thing that i said i loved about barbie was that the film is dealing with these issues without being preachy or on the nose about it or when it is on the nose it's done in a campy way like yes. so that it's intentionally on the nose right. the the analogy i've been making is that feminism in barbie is kind of like christmas spirit in elf where it's yeah it's, it's no used totally. as kind of like a magical tool where it's like well if we just explain it then it'll solve all the problems and it's like look we all know in the real world that's not how it works but it's barbie <laughs> it's barbie land it's magical yeah. like elf and santa claus flying with his sleigh like and the movie totally. knows that it's not trying to say that that's how the world works and it is used in a kind of campy way which i think is great i i loved it and uh it's a very different approach to these issues than thelma and louise because it is <laughs> absolutely it is on the nose at times with intention whereas this movie is much more uh, it shows instead of telling so anyway it's just interesting to look at those two sort of parallel stories and i thought particularly around the critical reaction when i was reading the reviews of this movie at the time it's like exactly the same damn discourse on the fringes of opinion but yeah other than the box office and the sort of broad reaction this movie wins best original screenplay at the oscars the other sort of distinction this movie has is that both gina davis and susan sarandon are nominated for best actress in a leading role 
which is oh, very, very unusual. Also nominated for Best Director, Cinematography, and Editing, but it is beat out by Silence of the Lambs in Silence, basically yeah, everything. Famously. Which takes yeah, everything much. else. Which, I, I mean, again, they're two very, well... I don't want to say they're very different movies because I think there's actually there's some quite interesting parallels. a bit of, of yeah, like thematic parallels. Yes. But if I had to pick one or the other, I think I would go with Silence of the Lambs. Oh, it's a taste so thing maybe, but because yeah. they are so different. Yeah. But I also understand why that movie cleans up. Um, and again, like that was unexpected at the time, you know, like because that's a pure genre movie and those do not normally do so well at the Oscars. Yeah, so totally. that was kind of transgressive and shocking in and of itself. So, yeah. But I'm glad that this film at least was acknowledged with getting a best original screenplay because that's, you know, I think that's almost like a bigger honor because in some ways, like, adapted yeah. screenplay, well, yeah, but, like, you're if you've got good enough source material, like, of course your screenplay is going to be good. Whereas, like, original, you got to... Yeah. That's all you, baby. And this was very and, original uh, at the time, for sure, you know, like... Yeah, totally. Bringing forward a, a very different perspective. So, Adam... Look, what is your final verdict on this movie? So we, we now know that, you know, if you had to choose between this and Silence of the Lambs, you'd choose Silence of the Lambs. But overall, <laughs> would you sort of recommend this movie? Do the strengths outweigh the weaknesses for you? Yeah, I mean, look, this is, I think this is an extremely well-made film with two absolutely knockout performances. Two, I mean, again... At least two. <laughs> they, well, yeah, at least two. This movie has so much going for it. I'm so bummed that the ending <laughs> didn't work for me, but I also recognize that I think like it would be very, very hard for it to because it's been spoiled and parodied so much since then that it's just like something like that, watching it 30 years later, it's hard for it to have that same level of impact. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I, I absolutely would recommend this. Watching it now, the thing that struck me so much is just the fact that it still feels kind of timeless and very topical and unfortunately so little has changed in the intervening years mm -hmm. that in and of itself is is reason enough to recommend it what about for you yeah no i mean i think you said it i would absolutely recommend this you know it just brings together such a unique sort of package of things the amazing acting amazing script you know, and, and also, like, the landscape, the cinematography, the score, mm -hmm. which we didn't actually talk that much about, but the score is Yeah, we didn't really too. get into the technical elements of it very much, but, like, it, it's Ridley Scott and, like, it's, so that's all know, Mr. Point. Style over substance, but, like, <laughs> this time he has the substance to back up the style. Totally. And the style never feels like it's tacked on. It always feels of a mm -hmm. piece with the content. It's, it's yeah, never it's in service of it. the story. Um, yeah, absolutely. and, like, you know, absolutely. when the characters are on screen, it's like the attention is on the acting and on the performances and I, I think it's it's really wonderful for that. T to your point, I think the way I would phrase it is that it still feels fresh today. I don't want to say it's timeless because I hope to God someday it's not timeless. And, <laughs> and, and it and doesn't it feel dated, uh, so, like a period That's piece. the word I was going to say. It doesn't feel dated yes. currently. It feels, um, it feels fresh and I think both in terms of certainly the issues it's tackling but also like the script and the acting and the style and the twists and turns that the story takes still mm -hmm. feel surprising unexpected and don't fall into a lot of the tropes that you see in movies today even other dramedies now that that's become more of a totally. genre so yeah i i say go for it for sure in terms of extra credit adam other movies that feel similarly like in this vein what would you recommend mm -hmm. 
What's funny, one of the movies that I was thinking about a lot while I was watching it, and this is going to sound wild because they, on the surface, they're so wildly different, but they're kind of not, is the Safdie Brothers Uncut Gems. Have you seen that movie? I haven't yet. It's, you know, it's been on my list. Oh my God. Okay. I, I almost want to tell you not to see it until you can see it in a theater because it is one of the most anxiety-inducing movies I've ever <laughs> seen, and it's one of the few movies where when it ended, the audience collectively let out a like sigh of relief because we all clearly had been holding our breath for the final act. Mm. But it's the story of someone who just keeps digging themselves deeper and deeper and deeper into oh, a pit, <laughs> and yeah. in that sense, it Kind, like this movie kind of reminded me of it because that's what happens to them is they just kind of find themselves deeper and deeper in shit yeah. and there's really no escape. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously Uncut Gems does not have like the feminist aspect to it, but that sort of element of just inescapable <laughs> problems definitely rings through. And then the other movie that I just, I couldn't get out of my mind while watching this was Patty Jenkins' Monster. Have you seen that? Yeah. I was, With Charlie Theron? Yes, I did see that. And I, I it because it would have been around the time we got to know each other. And I think I saw it in theater. Yeah, it came out in 2003. And so like we met in like 2002, 2003. Yeah. So, and I, my wife and I watched it I mean, at some point while we were dating. So Mm -hmm. it's within the last 10 years or whatever. So I have revisited it. And it's similar in this sort of sense of like, it's a story. I don't want to call it a revenge story, but it's essentially about women who have been abused and taking control of their lives and fighting back. And then also how the system sort of treats them as a result. I mean, I guess in a sense, Monster shows you what happens if you get caught? If Thelma and Louise have gotten caught, that's sort of what how Monster ends up ending because famously Eileen Warnos, I believe is her name, she was caught and convicted and I believe she passed away in jail because she was, you know, convicted to like multiple lives. And granted, she was a serial killer, right. so like it's a little bit different. But, yes. um, but yeah, that's another one of these movies where you are kind of rooting for these anti-heroes in a sense, Mm -hmm. because, like, what they're doing is murder, but it feels justified. Charlize Theron gives an absolutely astonishing performance in that film. Yeah. Transformative performance. She is literally unrecognizable in that movie. Also someone who's very underrated, I think, as an actress. Incredibly underrated. Yeah, I'd watch her in anything. And then Letterboxd, of all things, when I was was adding this to my Letterboxd, they now, like, recommend similar movies. It's using some, like, AI algorithm to recommend similar Mm -hmm. movies. And this one came up, and then I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know if you've seen it. Promising Young Woman. With um, I haven't seen that. It's Carrie also Mulligan. been on my watch list forever, and yeah, yeah. So it's I don't want to spoil anything, but it's got somewhat similar vibes. It's more cl- I would say it's closer to Monster, but the thing that makes it similar in is the sort of use of comedy. Promising Young Woman has a great deal of humor, but it also has what I would consider to be one of the darkest and most deeply disturbing scenes I've seen in the last five years. And it's not necessarily what you would think, but anyway, it's excellent. It's written and directed by Emerald Fennell. She was the writer on Killing Eve. Did you ever watch that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my wife and I are big fans of that Mm -hmm. show, so that's sort of why we checked it out. And uh, it came out during the pandemic, so it's one of those weird movies that, like, I think a lot of people kind of forgot about because it came out at the worst part. Like, it was the time when we were all desperate for stuff to watch, but then, like, we kind of forgot about everything that we watched. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend that one. But it's not for the faint of heart, I would sure, say. Sure, sure. Interesting. 
What about you? What comes to mind to you? So there were two that really stuck with me as, for very different reasons, sort of comparable to this. So one of them is Wild from 2014. Did you Mm. see that movie? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I yeah. I really like that movie. It's based on a book by Cheryl Strayed about her sort of experience walking. I'm trying to remember if it's the Appalachian Trail or the... No, it's the Pacific Crest Trail, which is like another really big American trail that goes up the coast. And, you know, she's sort of dealing with a lot of like personal trauma that sort of leads her to want to do this incredibly long hike and is not really prepared for it and just kind of has to like figure it out along the way. But... It also deals with a lot of issues of gender and I think freedom as a woman, you know, living in the world and, and freeing yourself from your situation. So, yeah, I would really recommend that. I enjoyed it a lot. Another one that uh, is a bit weirder, I guess, both as a, a stretch but also as a movie is David Lynch's The Straight Story. Which I'm guessing, oh. I'm guessing you've never seen this one. Uh, no, I. David Lynch is not a. Uh, he's not an Adam filmmaker. That's uh, for no. sure. I love the the Elephant Man, which is like his most mainstream film. But yeah. I don't even know that I know what this movie is. So it, it is. It, I would say that you know, again, I said this about Full Metal Jacket and regretted it when it comes to Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, uh, you sure, you I, sure I, did. But, Although we haven't we haven't aired that episode yet, but yes. you have that to look forward yes. to, folks. So I once said that that was you know one of Kubrick's more accessible films and I would say tentatively I haven't seen it in a little (laughs) while but I would say The Straight Story is probably one of David Lynch's more accessible movies as well but you know since we've now recorded that episode I can say I revised that to say conventional it's one of Ah, and that's probably true of this too it's one of David Lynch's more conventional movies in that like you know no one like it's not like Lost Highway where like someone wakes up as a different person and and all that sort of nonsense (laughs) Which which I no love one turns David into Lynch. a doorknob. I'm, yeah, I'm all I'm all for that kind of like crazy fun weirdness or crazy disturbing weirdness. But the straight story is a much more straight story, which is an old <laughs> I see what you did an, there. Yeah, exactly. An older man goes on a road trip to I believe find his ailing brother and connect with him on a riding lawnmower. Okay. And it sure. is it's it is a road movie by David Lynch that is both, like, about the American landscape, but also has his sort of, like, you know, strange sense of humor, funny characters, and you know, all that kind of stuff that happens in a David Lynch story. So I remember, again, very much enjoying it. And, again, it's been a moment, but I remember laughing a lot during this movie. Okay. Uh, You never know with these sorts of memories whether that is true or not but it just i think the american landscape aspect of it and the road story aspect of it really reminded me of of this movie um and also that i do think if i recall it is kind of funny but also it's a bit of a dramedy as i recall well i've pulled up the wikipedia article and i'm seeing that it is a walt disney picture so um (laughs) yeah so it's david lynch's disney movie so like that's just the weirdest pitch i've ever heard so um Sure. Okay. It's kind of like a weirdly Great. like a feel good David Lynch movie, which is like okay. Well, there you go. It's like a contradiction in terms, but that's all another reason to check it out. Yeah, the man can do anything, I guess. Yeah. Great. Well, you want to take us home, buddy? Well, uh, that brings us to the end of the episode. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick's war classic. Full Metal Jacket, as well as season one's Bart the General. So you have those to look forward to. 
Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans, brought to you by ThatShelf.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave us a review and share this episode with the Simpson fans and film buffs in your life. I know we say this every episode, but like every little bit counts. We're a small little show. We grow by word of mouth, and uh, we really appreciate all your support. So thank you for that. And until next time, Nate, we'll see you around the Plex. We'll see you around the Plex. Three hours and 19 minutes later. Yeah, that was a long one. I don't know how that... We had a lot to say, How I did guess. that one get so long? I don't know, and I don't know what you're going to cut, but... Um, we'll find out. Nate's coughing. So we're going to edit this part out as he... As, yeah, he's wheezing, and he's back. <laughs> um, um, okay, and on that note... <clears throat>